Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor. We are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode not only explores the killer horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa, a town that I don't think we will ever leave. So be sure to keep all of your slanderous remarks out of the newspapers as you prepare for the next installment of Murdered in Their Beds. of 1916 wreaked havoc among the cast of characters in the Villisca murders investigation. George Cozen failed in his bid for the governor's nomination. Horace Havner, a lawyer from Iowa City, became the next attorney general in November. County attorney Gillette lost his job to Oscar Winstrand, a young lawyer from Red Oak who was soon going to need all the courtroom experience that he had. But no one was more embarrassed or humiliated by the election than Frank Jones. He lost by a wide margin and he blamed it on James Wilkerson, and he was determined to do something about it. Jones had already announced that if any man publicly accused him of the murders, he'd take him to court. He was now ready to follow through on that threat. He hired his own detectives, including Thomas O'Leary, who had been part of the initial investigation into the murders, to start digging up dirt on Wilkerson. He picked two attorneys to handle his lawsuit, R.W. Beeson and Ralph Pringle, both from Red Oak. Both men were battle-hardened veterans of the courts with more than six 75 years of experience between them. But both men thought the case was a bad idea. They knew slander would be difficult to prove and that it would give Wilkerson a wide door to attack their client. But they just couldn't talk Frank out of it. Wilkerson, meanwhile, was continuing his crusade against Frank Jones. During his time in Villisca, he had attracted a small but loyal group of followers while also conducting meetings, gathering information, and of course, soliciting money. He continued telling people that Jones was guilty and why. What he was alleging was public knowledge, but for the lawsuit, Jones's attorneys wanted something that was not only public, but recent and documented. They didn't have long to wait. On August 3rd, Wilkerson called one of his outdoor meetings at a cow pasture south of town, likely belonging to Joseph Stillinger, who had become one of the detective's biggest supporters. Interested parties were publicly invited to attend. At the meeting with a few dozen people in attendance, Wilkerson made specific accusations against Jones and the members of the grand jury who had failed to indict William Mansfield. He invited others to make their own accusations, and several did so. That was enough for Frank's attorneys, and the lawsuit was filed in October 1916. It didn't go after just Wilkerson, at least at first. It named everyone in town who had supported him, including Ross Moore, J.B.'s brother, and Reverend Ewing from the Moore's Church. Frank, or perhaps his lawyers, had second thoughts about including everyone, and it was quickly refiled to target only Wilkerson. 
It seemed a much better idea to go after an out-of-state detective than members of the victim's family, ministers, and local farmers and businessmen. Even so, Frank would later say that the slander suit was the biggest mistake he'd ever made. The Burns Detective Agency was worried about the trial. It would be damaging to the agency's reputation if Wilkerson lost. To handle Wilkerson's defense, the agency hired a well-known lawyer from Council Bluffs named William Edward Mitchell. He was known for dominating a courtroom with his booming voice, masterful speaking skills, and caustic wit. He liked to refer to himself as, quote, just a country lawyer. But the truth was, Mitchell was smart, quick, and experienced, and had been successful as both a defense attorney and a prosecutor. In preparing for the trial, he learned everything about Wilkerson's theory and would present it to the jury in a way that not only argued there was no slander because the detective had good reason to suspect Jones, but he would also convince them that Wilkerson's theory was true. He turned the trial into a prosecution of Frank Jones, and he did it very convincingly. Before the trial, Frank had no idea of the depth of the investigation, of the people who would testify, or the incriminating things they would say. Instead of vindicating him, the trial would turn into a disaster. Tensions were high in Villisca and the surrounding area, and the people of Montgomery County were anxiously awaiting the start of the trial. Wilkerson promised he would defend himself by revealing the truth about Frank Jones and the murder plot. People traveled from all over the state and beyond to attend the trial, and area hotels quickly filled. Burns had assigned several detectives to stay in Red Oak to assist the witnesses and to run down any leads that developed while court was in session. Reporters flocked to town, excitedly covering the events for newspapers throughout the country. Clarence Miller, former editor of the Red Oak newspaper, was hired by the Villisca Review as a special correspondent. He was in the courtroom every day, taking notes and making observations. He would be accused of bias, and rightfully so, since he was a Wilkerson flunky, and with a few months, he would be named secretary of Wilkerson's, quote, protective association. His duties would include attending dozens of meetings, keeping records, and taking charge of fundraising to keep the investigation going. The trial began on Tuesday, November 14th. Attorney R.W. Beeson opened the proceedings on behalf of Frank Jones. He cited the facts in the case, that there was no evidence that Frank had anything to do with the murders, and then went on to point out all the times that Wilkerson had publicly accused his client of involvement in the crime. He also drew attention to Wilkerson's shady detective work as attempts to convince witnesses to perjure themselves with damning testimony about Jones. We will show, Beeson concluded, that this man, Wilkerson, has worked two years to frame up a case and convict an innocent man. Wilkerson's attorney, William Mitchell, then took the floor. He offered a detailed account of the Moore-Stillinger murders and stated that the killer was seen near the Moore house on the days leading up to the murders and had, at least once, gone into the Moore yard and picked up the murder weapon. Witnesses had seen the man and could connect him to the crime, he said. Mitchell then pointed out that on the night of the murders, Frank Jones had attended the services at the Methodist Church, but got up during the service and stayed outside for 15 minutes, then came back in and sat down near the back. He then offered the testimony of Vena Tompkins, who he alleged had been, quote, kidnapped by Senator Comfort Harvey Van Law of Marshalltown, a friend and supporter of Frank Jones, in order to keep her from testifying at this trial. He told about how she and her husband had been in Villisca during the street paving and that she'd heard men plotting against J.B. Moore behind the old slaughterhouse. Mitchell claimed one of the men was Frank Jones. He wanted to kill J.B. Moore because he had opened a competing implement store. Or maybe it was because of a woman. He offered that idea, too. He also alleged that the only reason the grand jury had not indicted William Blackie Mansfield, Frank Jones's hired killer, was because Frank had friends on the grand jury. 
Or maybe he paid them off. His opening statement was a little confusing, but hey, the whole trial turned out to be that way. When court resumed on November 15th, Frank's attorneys started calling witnesses who had heard Wilkerson state that Jones had paid to have J.B. Moore killed. They also reported that Wilkerson spoke about the slaughterhouse murder plot, told stories about Jones's cheapness, and of Wilkerson vowing that he would see to it that Jones lost the election. Most of the day was spent with witnesses like this, all of them testifying to damaging things that Wilkerson had publicly said about Frank. The trial continued on November 16th. The courtroom was filled beyond capacity with spectators, arriving hours before the courthouse opened so that they could get good seats. They sat on benches and chairs, and those who couldn't find seats stood up. Many of them sat on the floor just a few feet from the judge's bench. The parade of witnesses continued. They told of hearing Wilkerson accuse Frank of hiring J.B. Moore's killer on farms, in meetings, in hotels, pool halls, and on street corners. This went on for the next two days, and Frank's attorneys finally rested their case on the morning of November 18th. Wilkerson's attorney, William Mitchell, began his defense by revisiting the June 1912 murders again, calling Dr. Cooper to talk about the crime scene and Sylvester Cooney, who had been hired to clean up the house. Strangely, he also called Lee Van Gilder, J.B. Moore's nephew and a grandson of John Montgomery, Sarah's father, to the stand. He told of being at the murder scene with his grandfather and the two of them encountering Frank Jones after leaving the scene. Frank had expressed his sympathy to John Montgomery and added, quote, John, this is an awful thing. There's lots of talk around here about me being mixed up in this thing. You don't think there's anything to that, do you? Lee also testified that Frank had asked him several times if there was anything he could do for the young man. Jones assured him that he had nothing to do with the murders, that he and JB had been friends, and that it was he, Jones, who had convinced the attorney general to hire a detective to look into the case in the first place. In my opinion, Lee's testimony can hardly be called harmful to Frank Jones. Instead, it seemed to show a man who was concerned not only about his reputation, but in the well-being of the Montgomery family. On the day the murders were discovered, Jones was expressing worry about the family. He also wanted to make sure that John Montgomery, who he'd known for many years, did not think that he was somehow involved in the deaths. There's no mention of Montgomery's reply, but he almost certainly told Jones there was nothing to worry about and that he didn't think that Frank was involved. Montgomery's later interest in Wilkerson's theory probably had more to do with the fact that Wilkerson was at least doing something with the case. After more than four years, he undoubtedly had become frustrated and tired with the lack of movement in the investigation. He was ready to believe in anything at that point. Mitchell then sleazily called Otto Wilt, the police chief of Blue Island, Illinois, to the stand. He brought a show-and-tell item, the bloody axe left behind at the Mislick murders. Mitchell got him to admit that even though William Mansfield had an alibi for the murders, he could have taken a train to Blue Island and then returned to Milwaukee to be at work the next morning. Will failed to mention that the police had cleared Mansfield in the crime and that the grand juries in Illinois and Iowa had already failed to indict him. Since the proceedings of the grand jury were secret, Mitchell knew the jury in the slander trial would be unaware of this. Court resumed after the weekend, and on Monday, November 20th, the always entertaining Vena Tompkins took the stand. She first gave her background information and then told of seeing the three men at the slaughterhouse. She described the three men she heard plotting, stating that one of them had a beard. 
which really narrows it down. When Mitchell pointed at Jones and asked if the man's beard had looked like his, she said, quote, a little longer, I think, and a little wider under the chin. She said one of the men was heavy, and Mitchell pointed out Albert Jones and asked if the man was as heavy as Albert was. Tompkins said that he was, quote, not quite so heavy, but short like him. She was asked if she could make out what they said. She said the tall man had asked how they were to get money, and the man with the beard replied that they could get it, but not all at one bank. The man spoke of some, quote, job, and there was a remark about what would be done about, quote, the girl. The man with the beard answered, quote, we will have him out of the way anyhow. She said one of the men asked about when it would be done, and one of the others replied that it would not be right then, but sometime later. Oh, boy. As usual, Venus' story was just vague enough to be possible, but lacking the detail to be entirely the truth. During cross-examination, she said she'd told others about the three men, but Wilkerson was the first to hear the whole story. She claimed that she was reluctant to talk about it because someone who had murdered eight people likely wouldn't hesitate to kill her, too, if they found out that she had told. She admitted that the only reason she told Wilkerson about the details of the incident was because of fortune telling told her to do so. She then claimed that she had not told everything she knew to the Mansfield grand jury because, quote, she was asked not to. Beeson then produced a typewritten transcript of an interview that she'd had on November 4th with Senator Van Law. This was a confusing part of the trial because Mitchell and Wilkerson claimed that Van Law had kidnapped Tompkins to keep her from talking. Frank's lawyers, of course, had a much different version of events. Comfort Harvey Van Law had served with Jones in the Senate, but they were not personal friends. Van Law, disturbed by the allegations against a fellow senator, had gone to see Tompkins on his own. Jones was not aware of his visit until later. Tompkins told Van Law that she had seen three men near the slaughterhouse, but had never gotten close enough to hear what they were saying. She told Van Law that she had not seen the face of the older man, but that she did hear the word money mentioned and assumed they were gambling. She also told Van Law that she had been threatened by a detective and had been told exactly what to say in court. This version of events completely discredited her earlier story, which had been greatly inflated by Wilkerson, and blew a huge hole in Wilkerson's theory of the case, but Mitchell wouldn't let it go. Under his questioning, Vina claimed that she had lied to Van Law and had not been under oath, so it was okay to lie. Wilkerson had told her, she said, that if questioned, she should never tell the truth about the case. She said that Van Law had accompanied her and her husband to Red Oak and told her not to see anyone or say anything to anyone before she went on the stand. She also acknowledged that she had told the same story that she told to Van Law to attorney Ralph Pringle, but claimed again that it had all been a lie. During her questioning by Mitchell, she said that she had never been threatened or offered a bribe by Wilkerson and had been questioned by Marshall Horton and Mayor Lewis, but she'd lied to them too. Tompkins said this was because one of the men at the slaughterhouse said that, quote, the marshal was fixed. By my count, this is at least the fifth time that Vena Tompkins' story had been changed, either by Wilkerson or by Tompkins herself. The next witness was also highly Anticipated, even though her testimony had already been discredited by the grand jury. But of course, the slander trial jury didn't know that. Her name was Alice Willard, and she again told the story about seeing men talking in an alley about the crime and that one of the men was Frank Jones. She also claimed William Mansfield had been among them. She claimed that something was said about, quote, Sunday night and, quote, get Joe first and the others will be easy. Alice said she
she heard those words clearly and would be haunted by them for the rest of her life. This time, she added to the story. Now she claimed that she had received threatening letters after testifying before the grand jury and that Frank Jones had come to see her in August. He said he'd heard about the letters and offered to have his detective find out who sent them. was packed even tighter the next day with so many people crowded in to hear more of Alice Willard's testimony. Judge J.B. Rockefeller announced that from then on, no one except those connected with the case would be allowed inside the railing. Only those who could find seats in the gallery would be allowed in the courtroom. It had gotten so bad that during a noon recess, spectators had even taken the attorney's chairs. But Alice didn't show. It was announced that she had become ill during the night and would be unable to return that day. Fourteen others testified in her place, all called by the defense to show that Wilkerson had good reason for saying everything that he had about Frank Jones. Each witness was cross-examined and their stories discredited in some way, but this never slowed down Mitchell. One woman claimed she saw two strange men near the Moore house on the evening of June 9th. Frank's attorneys asked her how she could possibly remember seeing two strange men four and a half years later. No clear explanation was offered. Margaret Landers, who lived across the street to the east of the Moore's, also testified to seeing two strange men on June 9th. She said they had gone into the Moore's backyard and picked up an axe. They looked at it and then put it down and walked away to the north. She also claimed that during the night she heard a woman who she thought was Sarah Moore screaming and crying, oh dear, oh dear, don't, don't, don't. This was the first time this story had been told in the entire four years since the murders. It seemed as though the neighborhood was in a contest to see who could come up with the best story. J.C. Briggs, who owned a sawmill a few miles outside of Villisca, said that on the morning of June 10, 1912, he saw a man walking through the woods near the mill heading south. He was shown a picture of Mansfield, and he said he thought it was the same man. Aside from the fact that Mansfield was nowhere close to Villisca at the time of the murders, Beeson asked him how, after seeing a man's face for a few seconds from a distance of at least 60 feet, he could possibly identify him four years later from an old photograph. Three men testified to having seen Albert Jones and Joe Moore having a conversation in the alley that separated their two homes on the Sunday evening of the murders. The next witness, M.V. Selly, told about Jones's behavior at the Methodist Church on the evening before the murders occurred. He recalled him sitting in the back and then leaving for a few minutes during the service. On Wednesday, November 22nd, Alice Willard returned to the stand. She testified that two of the men who met the Joneses at the Moore house that night were William Mansfield and Harry Whipple, Wilkerson's favorite suspects, because I'm guessing that the Whipple's brother, The, was busy at the time. During the cross-examination by the Jones defense team, she said that the woman friend who was with her that night was now deceased. She said that Ed McRae, whose car they had gone for a ride in, was a traveling salesman for a Chicago novelty company, but she had not seen him in a couple of years. She said the encounter took place around 10 p.m. The sky was clear at the time, but there was no moon. She swore again that Harry Whipple was there, but she was less certain now about Mansfield.
Mansfield. She hesitated when asked if she was sure that one of the men was Frank Jones. She was asked several times and after her initial hesitation, maintained that she was, well, sure it had been him. Beeson was as skeptical about her story as the earlier grand jury had been. He said that it was absurd that she could have possibly identified the men from hiding at a distance of more than 20 feet on a dark night with no street lights, because remember they had been turned off, and with no moon. She was asked to explain how, if she could see them so clearly, they were unable to see her. Alice explained that she was hidden, and besides, Ed McRae had recognized Jones too. Begging the question as to how a traveling salesman from Chicago could identify Frank Jones, the judge ruled the whole thing inadmissible. She was also asked to explain why she had never told this story to anyone and then decided to tell Wilkerson. She said she'd kept the secret until the previous August, and then after receiving threatening letters, she contacted Wilkerson. The problem was she earlier said that the threatening letters came after her grand jury testimony, not before. Dr. R.B. Smith of Villisca Dentist testified that on the morning when the murders were discovered, he went to the Moore house and saw Frank Jones sitting in an automobile across the street. He had a conversation with Jones, and Smith made a remark to the effect that if the bloodhounds were to do any good in tracking the murderer, there shouldn't be so many people allowed to tramp through the house. Jones allegedly replied, quote, that won't make any difference. Walter March, who operated a restaurant near the Velisca train depot, testified that he had been in the pool hall owned by Burt McCall, Albert's friend and driver, on the day after the funerals and saw McCall with what he claimed was a piece of J.B. Moore's skull. It still had blood on it. Henry Gorley also testified to seeing the gruesome trophy and added that McCall told him that, quote, he got it when they were cleaning up over there. George Sparger confirmed the testimony, saying that he had been shown the bone about two weeks after the murders. Wilkerson's theory had it that the piece of bone had been picked up by the killer at the time of the murders and had been taken to Frank Jones as proof that the deed had been done. Another damning bit of testimony was given by Charles N. Fessler, the Velisca undertaker who prepared J.B. Moore's body for burial. Fessler said there had been little left of Moore's skull that had been beaten to a pulp and that small fragments of bone and flesh were strewn over his pillow. He said that he had gathered them up in a basket and removed them to City Hall. But there's little doubt that McCall did sneak into the house on the afternoon of the day the bodies were discovered. He was allowed into the house by Captain Casey, his drinking and gambling buddy, who was in charge of the local National Guard unit. It was at this time that McCall likely stole the piece of bone that was later displayed at the pool hall. McCall was unquestionably a loser, but he wasn't part of any murder plot, no matter what Wilkerson claimed. The proceedings continued on Thursday, November 23rd, with the attorneys battling it out over the admissibility of some of the testimony about the bone fragment. After nearly two hours, the judge finally decided it would be allowed and would stand in the record. After this, Alice Willard returned to the stand. This time, she testified about a visit that Frank Jones paid to her home on August 12, 1916. She said that Jones asked her if she had received a threatening message signed with his name, and she told him that she'd received some threatening letters, but nothing with his name on them. Apparently, she had visited Jones's store and told several employees, including Albert, about the letters. Frank Jones called on her after that. 
She also admitted that he had asked her the names of the men she had seen behind the Moore house on the day before the murders and that Jones remarked he didn't know how she could identify them by photos four years later. JB's brother Ross followed her on the stand. He testified about the telephone call that he'd received from Mary Peckham and the events that led to the discovery of the bodies. He described how Marshall Horton had come out of the house and gasped, quote, something awful has happened here. There was somebody dead in every bed. Moore said that he nearly collapsed and went directly to the Peckham house and lay down on the couch. He came back about a half hour later and Frank Jones met him in the yard, shook hands with him and offered condolences. Hank Horton also testified about the events of the morning of June 1912. He was followed by Sheriff Jackson, who brought the murder weapon with him on the stand, likely to shock the jury. He tried to make Vena Tompkins' testimony more believable, but coming from a longtime Wilkerson pal, it didn't mean much. James Wilkerson's testimony had been anxiously awaited by his supporters, although it turned out to be somewhat anticlimactic since the story had already been told. The people packed into the courtroom hung on every word of his seven-hour testimony, though, which started with his statement that he believed Marshal Hank Horton was dishonest. Objections to his testimony came fast and furious, but were largely overruled. He managed to give a detailed account of his investigation and why he had been led to conclude that Frank and Albert Jones had planned the murders. He went through all of it, including his belief that Dona Jones was carrying on multiple affairs and that Frank Jones, already angry that J.B. Moore was hurting his business, became enraged when he learned that J.B. was one of her lovers. Mitchell led him through his testimony and he told of meeting Vena Tompkins and her identification of a photograph of Frank Jones as one of the men seen at the slaughterhouse that day. He spoke about Burt McCall and his role as part of the plot, namely assisting with the killer's escape. He described McCall's new automobile, obtained a few weeks after the murders, and said he believed that Jones had given him the car's payment for his part in the crime. He told of a visit that he and Sheriff Jackson had paid to Burt McCall, in which they called him a liar and accused him of being involved in the murders and with the killer's escape. He said McCall responded that they were damned liars. Wilkerson claimed that as he and Jackson pressed him, McCall started to cry, but he maintained his denial. After that, he turned his attention to Mansfield and the Blue Island murders. He said that he believed that shortly after Mansfield was arrested, Frank Jones had hired Detweiler as Mansfield's attorney. He said that County Attorney Gillette had put little effort into the Mansfield indictment. Besides, the grand jury had been biased in favor of Frank Jones, so there was no way to win, even though Mansfield was undoubtedly guilty. Wilkerson was cross-examined by Ralph Pringle, who didn't keep him on the stand for long. In response to Pringle's sarcastic questions, Wilkerson coolly replied that he'd never attended acting school and had never been on the stage except as a public speaker. He said he thought that the Burns agency had spent about $7,000 on the case, although only about $5,000 had been paid. After Wilkerson, Ed Landers took the stand. He had some pretty sensational claims to make. Landers was the son of Margaret Landers, who had testified earlier that she saw two strangers in the Moore's backyard before the murders and then heard what sounded like Sarah Moore screaming on the night of the murders. Lander was a real estate salesman from Shenandoah. He and his wife Ethel were staying with his mother in June 1912. The elder Mrs. Landers lived across the street from the Moors. He testified that he was returning to his mother's house shortly before 8 p.m. on June 9th after eating dinner downtown. He said he was a block west of J.B. Moore's house when he saw a man walking ahead of him. When the man reached the Moore house, he turned and went inside. When Landers was asked if he recognized the man, he replied that he did, but he refused to say who it was. He sat on the witness stand in silence, refusing to speak for almost five minutes.
sentence. When the judge finally ordered him to reply, he said that he thought the man was Albert Jones, who he'd known since childhood. He said he'd been about eight feet away and could see the man clearly as he went into the Moore's house. The defense attorneys produced a transcript of the testimony that Landers had given at the coroner's inquest more than four years before. He'd said nothing about seeing Albert Jones entering the Moore house. When asked about this, he said he hadn't mentioned it then because he wasn't sure about the date. He insisted that he was sure now, though, and that Albert had gone into the house while the Moors were still at church that night. JB's brother, Ross Moore, was recalled to the stand, this time by the defense. He was asked to recount the details of a trip that he'd made with a few other men to an abandoned slaughterhouse just two days after the murders in 1912. He had been contacted by a clairvoyant from Red Oak known as Auntie Hamilton, who said to possess what the newspapers called, quote, occult powers. He said the psychic described the murderer as a large man with a dark mustache, roughly dressed and wearing a slouch hat. And here's the weird thing. Listeners may recall this is almost the same description given of the suspect in the Colorado Springs murders in 1911 by the milkman who was making his early deliveries. Anyway, Auntie Hamilton predicted that he would give himself up in two weeks. Well, local reporters didn't take her seriously, but many people did, and her psychic predictions made interesting reading. Apparently, she didn't know that the murder weapon had been left at the scene because she told Ross Moore that it would be found near a slaughterhouse. So Ross got a couple of friends to go with him, and they went out to the abandoned building on the banks of the East Nottoway River to look around. They found nothing of interest, but their search did make the newspapers. During Ross Moore's testimony at the slander trial, attorney Pringle suggested that the search, which had been reported in the newspapers, inspired Vena Tompkins to concoct her story about overhearing the murder conspirators plotting at the slaughterhouse. A number of other people followed Ross to the stand, including an osteopath from Villisca, a traveling salesman, a farmer, and several businessmen. All of them had been called to testify concerning the reputation and moral character of Alice Willard, one of Wilkerson's star witnesses. None of them spoke of her very favorably. H.A. Glockemeyer, a Moore neighbor, testified of seeing a heavy-set stranger in town at about 8.30 p.m. on the evening of the murders. He said the man had approached his house, but when he saw Glockemeyer sitting on his porch, he quickly turned and started walking south. He said he didn't know who the man was, and he hadn't seen him since. He also testified about the vacant lot where Alice Willard claimed to hear her, quote, get Joe first conversation. He said that the lot was rye grass with some hogs pastured on it, and that the grass along the fence was only a foot high. There was no brush or trees where she and her friends could have hidden. There was only one small tree on the northwest corner. He said he saw Albert Jones feeding his chickens at about 7 p.m. that evening. Later, when he was playing in his yard with his children, he saw through the dining room window that Albert and Donna were at home. So Albert could not have been going into the Moore house that night, as Ed Landers claimed. If anyone had been seen going inside, it was the strange man that Glockemeyer had seen on the street. Alice Willard was called back to the stand by Frank's attorney. He asked her if, at the grand jury session the previous summer, she admitted telling a number of people, including Hank Horton and Frank Jones, that she could not identify Mansfield as the man she'd seen on the streets of Aliska at the time of the murders. She stated she'd never said any such thing. Mrs. Lou Pierce was then brought to the stand. She testified that when she and Alice Willard went in Red Oak at the time of the grand jury session, Willard had told her that she could not identify Mansfield. 
Mansfield. Pierce also stated that she had introduced Willard to Wilkerson. Finally, Burt McCall took the stand. He told the jury that he was currently living in Missouri Valley, Iowa, and that he had moved there four years earlier after living in Villisca for eight years with his wife and two children. While living in Villisca, he'd operated a billiard hall, sold cars, and operated an automobile livery service. During his time as an auto dealer, he sold Ford, Regal, and Jackson automobiles and was assisted in his business by Albert Jones. He denied having anything to do with the murders, and he added he had bought his own car. It had not been a payoff for anything. McCall was aggressively cross-examined by Wilkerson's attorney, who tried to confuse him and get him flustered. At one point, he even caused McCall to forget his own wedding anniversary. He asked him if his real business was poker, not billiards, and McCall said that he played poker, quote, just for recreation. He was unable to remember what he'd been doing on June 8, 1912. It had been more than four years ago, but assumed that he'd been in his place of business. He acknowledged that he had been at the Knights of Pythias Hall on Sunday, June 9th, to play cards and name several people who were there, including Captain Casey. He thought he played cards until about 11 p.m. that night. He didn't recall where he had been the previous Sunday night, but imagined it was the same place with mostly the same people. He admitted that he had tried to cross the National Guard line and enter the Moore House, but had been turned back, and then later was allowed inside by Captain Casey. When questioned about the bone fragment, he claimed he picked it up in an alley because it looked like a piece of bone that he saw in the Moore House. He said he'd take it into his pool hall and stuck it in a cigar case. He alleged they never told anyone it was a piece of J.B. Moore's skull, but a lot of people came in to see it and ask about it and assumed it was. He said he kept it for a few days and then threw it out. Well, Mitchell badgered him about the bone, and he repeatedly denied taking it from the house, and he also denied telling anyone that it was part of anyone else's skull. McCall told Mitchell that he had no idea he was a suspect in the murders until he received a letter from Frank Jones a few weeks before the trial. He admitted that Wilkerson had accused him of being part of some plot a long time before, but McCall said, quote, he didn't rely on anything, Wilkerson said. In that way, he was probably a smart man. Hank Horton was recalled to the stand by Jones's attorneys. He testified that he had spoken to Alice Willard about Mansfield after the grand jury session. He said that she had told him that Mansfield, quote, might be the man, but I couldn't swear to it. Horton also testified that Ed Landers had never told him of seeing anyone go into the Moore house until the fall of 1912. And then he said he thought the man walking in front of him was Ross Moore until he turned around. And then he said he didn't know who it was. Horton stressed the fact that Landers had never, not once, told him it was Albert Jones. Horton also testified that he and then Mayor Lewis had gone to Marshalltown to talk to Vena Tompkins. And she told them that all she knew about the Villisca murders was what she'd read in the newspaper. She had none of the secret knowledge that she had when Wilkerson came around and started promising her things in exchange for her testimony. The marshal did mention one strange event that took place on the night of June 9th. Around 10 p.m., Horton said he was in the city park talking to night watchman Henry Mike Overman when he saw a man walk by them in the shadows. Horton called out to him, but the man never turned around. He said he told Overman, quote, Mike, I got a notion to make that fellow face around. Horton didn't shine his light on him or call out to him again, and the man disappeared into the darkness.
On Friday, December 1st, Ellie Lewis, the former mayor of Villisca, was called to the stand. He testified, as Hank Horton had, about going to Marshalltown to interview Vena Tompkins. He also said that she knew nothing about the murders at the time other than stories she'd seen in the paper. When cross-examined Lewis, who was an attorney himself, admitted that he had told Frank Jones what Tompkins had told them and that he had been employed a few days before by Jones's attorneys to serve a few subpoenas. One of the subpoenas was served on Harry Whipple, the next witness that Jones's attorneys called to the stand. He would have likely had some interesting testimony to give if he'd actually been asked to offer any. Whipple was, according to Wilkerson, an essential part of the murder plot. He had, with Vena Tompkins' testimony, depicted him as an outlaw and a killer of the worst kind and had placed him inside of the house while Mansfield was slaughtering the Moore family. A few weeks earlier, Wilkerson had taken Alice Willard to Carbon, where Whipple lived, and she'd positively identified him as one of the men she'd seen with Mansfield on June 8th. Whipple had been subpoenaed by Jones, supposedly to establish that he had been nowhere near Velisca at the time of the murders. Whipple was a tall, rough-looking man who'd been sitting in the courtroom for nearly a week, expecting to testify each day. He was accompanied by several other men, the assumption being that they were there to confirm his alibi. He finally took the stand on December 1st, was sworn in, and then Mitchell asked for a recess to consult with Wilkerson. Whipple's testimony was postponed until after lunch, but when court reconvened, Mitchell asked that John Warren Knoll be called to the stand instead. Vena Tompkins had been seen during the lunch break talking to Mitchell and Wilkerson and then talking with her brother. No one knows what transpired next, but Whipple and his friends left the courthouse and didn't return. Fortunately for Wilkerson, he never testified. If he'd been put on the stand and provided a convincing alibi, the detective's case would have been badly damaged. As it turned out, we'll never know what Whipple might have said that day. John Knowles' return to the stand surprised many in the gallery. He was listed as a witness for Frank Jones and early on had told the jury that Wilkerson had tried to buy a picture of Jones from him. That was all he was expected to testify about. Noel was placed under oath and he proceeded to tell about a strange conversation that he just happened to overhear. It seems people were always overhearing disturbing conversations connected to the Villisca murders for whatever reason. The photographer said that at the time of the incident, he had lived in Villisca for about three years. He and his wife occupied a house on the southeast corner of the block in which the Jones house was located. He said the house was about 14 feet from a warehouse that belonged to Frank Jones. He said that on May 26th or 27th, 1916, a few days before the primary elections, he returned home from his studio at 10.30 p.m. His wife told him that she had heard voices coming from the warehouse and Noel went outside to listen. He described the building as a large wooden structure with openings in the sides. There was a gap between the double doors and that is where Noel said he stood, looking inside and listening as the four men talked. Mitchell asked him if he knew any of the men, and Noel replied that he did. Frank and Albert Jones and two other men, one of whom he later learned was Burt McCall. They were in the dark, but were smoking cigars, and the dim light from the burning tobacco illuminated their faces. He claimed that he heard Jones say that he had to win the primary election or he would, quote, not have the political pull to put down this thing. One of them also said they had to get rid of Wilkerson, saying, quote, we have to get rid of that son of a bitch if we have to kill him. They also allegedly mentioned Landers testifying against him that, quote, they knew about Mansfield. Noel said that they discussed either paying off Vena Tompkins or using Senator Van Law 
law to scare her away. They also brought up Attorney General George Cozen. Knowles said, quote, I heard them say something about Cozen being with us and that County Attorney Gillette was easily fixed. Knowles said that he had listened outside the warehouse until almost midnight but could not make out most of the conversation. It was a fantastic and preposterous story, much like Vina Tompkins' story, and Wilkerson undoubtedly had his hand in it. It was more than a coincidence that Knowles' story nicely contained all of Wilkerson's theories. What is unknown is why Knowles had waited so long to come forward with it, especially with Wilkerson's life supposedly in danger. Most of the reporters on hand treated the scale with skepticism, but yeah, it was still big news. Beeson cross-examined him, asked him why he'd waited six months to tell what he'd heard. Knowles had no good answer, only that he thought, quote, it would be for the good of humanity to tell it now. How noble. Beeson forced him to admit that he knew Jones held him responsible for the fire in the bank building in December 1915 and that he'd been sore about it. He also admitted that he had been in his studio with Wilkerson, Mitchell, and some of the men on the night before he testified, going over what he was going to say. He denied that Wilkerson had paid him for his testimony. Beeson cast some doubt on Noel's fanciful story, but there was no way to know if it was enough. Court adjourned for the weekend, and on Monday, December 4th, Albert Jones took the stand. He he answered questions about the day the murders were discovered, describing his activities the morning as he always had. He said that on Saturday, June 8th, he and his wife had gone to Clorinda to visit friends. He said that he and Dona spent the night there and most of Sunday and then returned to Villisca on Sunday evening around 6 p.m. He said that he went to the store, returning home around 7, and did not leave the house the rest of the evening. On Monday, Albert said he got up, did some chores, had breakfast, and then went to the store and waited for an early customer. He telephoned Bert McCall call to make sure he was still coming to pick him up, waited for a short time, and then made the trip north with McCall driving, stopping several times to call on customers. They were at one of the farms when they heard that Joe Moore and his children had been murdered. He said he and McCall returned immediately to town at that point. He said that he often hired McCall to drive him around and that they were friends. He confirmed they had been partners in an auto dealership, but added they had not done well with sales. He denied that the conversation in the warehouse described by Noel ever took place. The next witness was Frank Jones. Beeson took him through a series of questions that allowed him to talk about his background, his career in teaching, farming, banking, and in the farm implement business. He also spoke of his involvement in the church, his terms on the city council, three terms in the Iowa House of Representatives, his Senate career, and appointment to the State Board of Education. Beeson then asked him about every allegation that had been made against him. The Slaughterhouse Plot, Alice Willard's story, Harry Whipple, Mansfield, the Knoll testimony, everything. Jones denied being connected in any way with the crime. He said that on the night of the murders, he'd gone to church, admitting he had not taken his usual seat in front. The Holy Rollers were conducting their service that night, and he wasn't sure he was going to stay, so he sat in the back. Jones said there were some boys making noise outside during the service, so he stepped out long enough to tell them to quiet down. He went home after the service, he said, and did not leave his house again that night. He said he found out about the murders while he was at the construction site of his new bank. A man named Rose came running down the street and told him. Jones said that he then went to the Moore house and seen Ross Moore sitting on the steps of the Peckham house next door, went to him and shook his hand. He saw Dr. Cooper coming out of the house and asked him if the news was true. He said he told him it was. There were eight people dead inside and that he didn't advise him going in. 
He said that on the morning the bloodhounds were brought in, he'd been talking with a farmer named Harry Willett, who said there were suspicions concerning a man named Bartlett being involved with the murders. Jones said he replied, as a joke, they have me along the suspects too, he said. He also said he didn't remember saying anything to the effect that all the people walking around the house and yard wouldn't make any difference to the bloodhounds. Jones confessed that prior to the trial, he'd gone out of his way to talk to several people who'd made incriminating statements about him. All of them denied it. He'd spoken to Alice Willard about Wilkerson's claims that she'd received threatening letters with Jones's name on them. He said that Willard told him that she had received no such letters and knew nothing about the story. Jones said that a few days later, Willard and her sister came into his store and told him that she wanted to set the story right. She admitted to having received some threatening letters, but none of them had Jones's name on them. She also told him that she had seen some strange men near the Moore house around the time of the murders. Jones asked her why she didn't tell the investigators about it at the time. She said she didn't know why, but she told her neighbors. Jones said she also told him that she had identified a photograph of one of the men she'd seen that night, but when Mansfield was in Red Oak for the grand jury, she saw him and knew it wasn't him. Frank firmly stated that he'd never sent letters of any kind to Willard. In addition, he'd never heard of William Mansfield until the anonymous letters were sent out just before the primary elections. He denied planning or paying for the murder of J.B. Moore. He said that he did not assist Mansfield with his defense and he did not put up any of the money for his bond. Well, Mitchell took over the questioning. He asked Frank if he'd taken a great interest in the case, and Jones admitted he had. Mitchell asked him if he had asked any of the grand jury witnesses about their testimony, and Jones said he'd not. When was the first time you heard Mansfield was connected with the murder, Mitchell asked. When I saw it in the Kansas City Post some months ago, answered Jones. When did you first learn that Wilkerson was investigating the case? About a year ago this fall, Frank answered, at the time of the old settlers reunion, I believe. Mitchell continued with a lengthy list of questions, mostly wondering when Jones became aware of certain things. Mitchell then asked if it was true that Wilkerson introduced himself to him at church about 18 months before, and Jones said he couldn't recall. He said he often met strangers who were just passing through while at church. When asked who was present at City Hall in the morning of the murders while telephone calls were being made, Jones could only remember Hank Horton, Captain Casey, and himself. Mitchell spent hours grilling Joan, wrapping up the testimony for the day. The aging senator was visibly shaken when he finally left the stand, but he felt good about his testimony. He denied any connection to the crime and had set the record straight, finally dismissing the idea that he had anything to do with the murders. After this, he believed the rumors would finally stop. Or so he thought at the time. December 6th, Frank Jones was called back to the witness box. He was asked when he first heard about Vena Tompkins. He replied that it was June 12th, 1916, when he received a letter from Senator Wallace H. Arney, who told him about Tompkins and her story. Jones wrote him back, and both letters were admitted into evidence. Mitchell pointed out that in Jones's letter, he wrote to Arney that Tompkins did not testify at the grand jury like he wanted her to. Mitchell asked Jones how he'd obtained secret grand jury information, and Jones replied that 
Wilkerson's landlady had told him. Later in the letter, he referred to Wilkerson as, quote, a first-class rascal. Mitchell asked Jones how and when he reached that opinion, and Jones said that it had been in July 1916. He pulled a letter from his pocket from H.W. Stubbs, the county attorney of Grant County, Kansas. Mitchell took it from him and read it, his face turning bright red. He immediately objected to the letter being admitted as evidence. The judge agreed, and the jury never got to hear what Stubbs had to say about Wilkerson and the Nellie Byers murder case, although we can rest assured it was definitely not flattering. Mitchell then called Mary Moore, J.B.'s mother, to the stand. The elderly woman was carefully escorted to the witness box by James Wilkerson. Mitchell asked Mrs. Moore her name and established the fact that her son Joe had been working for Jones when one of his and Sarah's children had been born. Beeson asked her no questions, likely wondering why Mitchell had called her as a witness and she was excused. Wilkerson hurriedly went to her side and escorted her from the courtroom. Alice Willard, again, came back to the stand on December 7th, and it would be testimony that would send an electric shock through the courtroom. Her earlier testimony that she had seen Jones, Mansfield, Whipple, McCall, and others planning the murders had been stunning enough, but that she came forward only after receiving anonymous threatening letters that the only people who could corroborate her story were either dead or missing, that Beeson and Pringle had managed to portray her as someone who would sell her testimony all combined to make her some sort of tainted celebrity in the area. She was the center of attention by this point of the trial and the subject of more gossip than anyone else involved, except for probably Frank Jones himself. And now, as most people thought the trial was nearly over, she was back on the stand again. The lawyers knew what was coming, as did many of Wilkerson's cronies, who'd spread the word to get to the courthouse early to get a good seat, but everyone else was taken by surprise. Mitchell put the story together for the court using several witnesses. Here's the story. After court had adjourned on Monday, December 4th, an attorney named Chevrolet Junkin, who belonged to the same law firm as Pringle and had been seated with Jones's attorneys during the trial, had rented a car in Red Oak. A man named Emery Penry was hired to drive the car from Red Oak to Villisca. Penry testified that it was Junkin who rented the car, but that the passenger he was supposed to take to Villisca was a man he identified as Jim Atkinson. He said that Atkinson told him to drive to the Evans Hotel and that he went inside and came out a few minutes later with a woman. The woman was Alice Willard, although Penry admitted it was dark and he didn't get a good look at her. Penry said that the woman and Atkinson got into the back seat as he drove, and he overheard parts of their conversation. He claimed to hear the woman say, quote, they got that backwards, and later, quote, no, I seen what I saw that night. Penry said that as he drove, he was instructed to go to a house in Villisca. When they got there, the woman was crying and didn't want to get out. He was told to drive around for a few more minutes. When they got back to the house again, both passengers got out. Atkinson returned a few minutes later. Penry said they left the car at a garage in Villisca, ate supper, and then caught a westbound train. Atkinson got off in Stanton, and Penry returned home to Red Oak. Mitchell brought in other witnesses to corroborate the auto rental and to confirm that Jim Atkinson and Alice Willard were seen in it. He then called Alice back to the stand. After being reminded she was still under oath, Alice stated she'd left the courtroom on Monday and had gone to the local depot but missed the train to Villisca. She said that she met Atkinson there and he offered 
offered her a ride. She'd known Atkinson and his wife for years, considered them friends, and accepted his offer. She said that as they were driving to Villisca, Atkinson asked her what she was getting in exchange for her testimony against Jones. She replied she'd received nothing and that she knew the Moore boys for years and they'd always been friends. Atkinson said that she should have asked for money because if she had testified for Jones, she might have been able to get as much as $2,000 for it. Willard then told Atkinson that she knew what she'd seen that night and that money would not buy her testimony. She told the courtroom that Atkinson reminded her that she had no one to back up her story about seeing Frank Jones behind the Moore house that night. Her friend Mabel Freeman was dead and no one knew where McCray was. Atkinson then allegedly told her that Jones had plenty of witnesses to say she wasn't there and that many of them would say that he was in Des Moines that night. His lawyers would make her out to be a liar and she was liable to go to prison for perjury. Willard admitted she began to cry after this and was crying too hard to get out of the car when they reached her house. She then claimed that Atkinson told her that she would be well paid if she agreed to retract her statement that she'd made against Jones. Mitchell smiled smugly at the end of the story, knowing that he finally had Jones right where he wanted him. Frank's attorneys, not surprisingly, had an entirely different version of the encounter between Atkinson and Willard. They knew Atkinson, they had him on their witness list, and they planned to use him to further destroy the reputation of Alice Willard. Atkinson's story was that he knew Willard very well and that on Memorial Day 1915, they had met in the park in Villisca where they sat on a bench and talked. He said she told him about being out on Saturday night before the murders and seeing three men, but didn't know who they were. One of them, she said, had looked like her ex-husband. Atkinson said that she told him that Wilkerson had offered her $500 to give a statement, saying that the two men were Jones and McCall, but she was holding out for a thousand. Atkinson had been present for most of the trial, waiting to testify, and had seen Willard several times during the past week. He said that he thought she was worried about what he might testify to, and that on Monday after the trial, she told him that she needed some advice and suggested he take her home in a car. Atkinson not only didn't have a car, he said he didn't know how to drive, but he thought that if she needed to talk, it might be important. Among those also waiting at the depot were Hal Hausen, a banking partner of Jones, and the lawyer, Chevalier Junkin. Atkinson told them of his conversation with Willard and arrangements were made to rent a car and driver. After the trip got underway, Atkinson asked her what she wanted to talk about, and she replied that she was worried about the evidence she'd given and wondered if Jones could provide an alibi. Atkinson told her he didn't know, but if she wasn't sure that it had been Jones she saw that night, she needed to tell that to the court. Atkinson denied he offered to pay her to change her testimony, and he continued he'd been set up. In hindsight, he realized that Willard had raised her voice only at a time when she said something ambiguous, like, quote, I know what I saw, and quote, I'd never do it. She had intended the driver to overhear the words, and they'd been taken out of context, he claimed. Her crying in front of the house, Atkinson said, was all part of Willard's show for the driver. With that in mind, Beeson cross-examined Willard, but it did little good. She denied everything that Atkinson claimed and swore that he tried to bribe her. Beeson did get her to admit that the first person she told about the controversial ride with Atkinson had been James Wilkerson, convenient since he'd been the one who set the whole thing up. Mitchell called Atkinson, who seemed now to be a reluctant and uncertain witness. It's no surprise that he was shaken by what he'd just heard and by what he had just realized had happened to him. As he told his story, Wilkerson was sitting at the defense table glaring at him and passing notes to Mitchell. He spoke 
joke about what he believed Alice Willard had done to entrap him, but Mitchell pretended to be dubious of his story. He managed to bring out that the bill for the car rental had gone to Pringle's office. Atkinson said he'd straighten that out and pay the bill himself, but by this time, well, the damage was done. It's not hard to see now that Atkinson had been tricked by a cunning woman, likely with advice from Wilkerson, but at the time, there were many who believed her story and believed that Frank Jones had tried to buy off an incriminating witness. This would turn out to be one of the final nails in the coffin of the Jones lawsuit. More testimony followed, including conflicting accounts about the warehouse behind the Jones store, where Noel claimed that he had heard McCall and the Joneses making plans. Some witnesses said there would not have been enough space in the gap between the doors for Noel to see inside, that the flame from a cigar would not have been bright enough to see their faces, and that there was too much farm machinery inside for three men to have stood where Noel said they were. Jones never used profanity, they said, and Noel's story was a complete sham. Then others came to the stand who said there would have been plenty of room between the building slats for Noel to see inside, and an aisle in the shed would have given three men plenty of room to stand. The jury looked at photographs of the building and even took the train to Villisca to take a look for themselves. Hank Horton was called to the stand again, becoming the last witness in the case. He described how Wilkerson had taken him to task a few days earlier for, quote, leaning toward Jones. He said that the detective told him that he, Wilkerson, was the authority in the case and would see to it that Horton lost his badge. Beeson used this testimony to show how Wilkerson had bullied and tried to intimidate the Villisca marshal. The marshal had managed to end the trial's testimony by presenting Wilkerson in bad light again, but it wouldn't be enough to undo the damage that had been done. The attorneys presented their closing arguments with Beeson first citing the accusations that had been made against Frank Jones and then summing up the character and reputation of James Wilkerson. He insisted that the detective had tried to gain fame by pinning the murders on a man with a statewide reputation by poisoning the minds of grieving friends and relatives with lies. He made up stories, paid witnesses to perjure themselves, and even tried to frame William Mansfield, an innocent man that a grand jury refused to indict. Beeson paid special attention to the phony testimonies of Vena Tompkins, Alice Willard, and John Knoll. After three hours, he closed by saying, quote, there is no evidence to show that F.F. Jones had any reason to kill Joe Moore. It is all framed up, dramatic, unbelievable. Scandal loves a shining mark. All this evidence is fictitious, constructed the growth of imagination and falsehood. Do what your conscience prompts you to do in this instance. Wilkerson's attorney took his place and Mitchell started by calling Beeson's arguments both disgraceful and outrageous. He defended Alice Willard and attacked Jim Atkinson for claiming that a, quote, weak, frail woman could take advantage of him. According to Mitchell, the murders had been planned by a mastermind and carried out by a hired killer. He defended Ed Landers and ripped apart Hank Horton, who he called a henchman of F.F. Jones. He gave the jury something besides the slander suit to consider when he said, quote, if you want the murderer to be caught, then give a verdict that will encourage men who are trying to ferret this thing out. Bring in a verdict for Jones, and this thing will remain unsolved forever. Mitchell concluded his arguments at a few minutes before 6 p.m. Court adjourned for dinner until 7, and after which Beeson was given the final word on the case. He showed no mercy in attacking Wilkerson and the various witnesses for the defense. Wilkerson, he said, was a pathetic man and a publicity hound. Beeson reminded the jury of the detective's demeanor during the trial. While Frank Jones had attended the trial each day and sat quietly minding his own business, Wilkerson constantly circulated throughout the courtroom, smiling at the ladies, slapping backs, 
and shaking hands like a low-rent politician. Beeson added, quote, it will take more than him and his loudmouth lawyer who gets up here and twists the facts to convince you in this case. Beeson continued to discredit Wilkerson's witnesses, laughing about the various versions of Vena Tompkins' slaughterhouse story. He also pointed out that Ross Moore had gone to the same slaughterhouse after the murders looking for an axe that a fortune teller told him he'd find there and testified there were no trees within 70 feet of the building behind which to hide, as Tompkins said she had. Beeson suggested to the jury that the whole slaughterhouse plot story had evolved from newspaper accounts of Ross Moore's innocent wild goose chase. Beeson called Ed Landers a, quote, queer kind of duck and said his story was absurd and had been thoroughly impeached. Noel, Beeson said, was even more ridiculous than Landers. He told the jury that the photographer's testimony was pure fiction that had been concocted by Wilkerson. Alice Willard was, of course, the most unbelievable of all. Not only was her reputation questionable, but her testimony had clearly been for sale. She could not have seen anyone in the darkness that night well enough to identify them, particularly Mansfield and Whipple. She'd never seen them before, but yet she could identify them at a distance of 15 to 20 feet on the darkest night of the years using photographs shown to him several years later. Beeson also wanted the jury to remember that Willard had claimed she'd heard Frank Jones say, quote, get Joe first and the rest will be easy. If they were to believe her story, then the jury had to believe that Jones had not only wanted his business competitor killed, he fully intended that his wife and four children be murdered too. Beeson suggested the enormous horror of the crime and then spoke about how it was at odds with Jones's long track record of public service and upstanding reputation. Beeson then added, quote, gentlemen, before you convict a man of murder, you certainly want better evidence than this. I say a verdict against Frank Jones will be hailed everywhere as an accusation of murder. Are you going to say that this man of over 60 years of age was party to this horrible murder? They are hinting here and now that he will be indicted for murder if this verdict goes against him. Well, this remark turned out to be the biggest misstep that he could have taken. It was tantamount to saying that a verdict against Jones was the same as an indictment of murder. Beeson intended to show the jury that a verdict against Jones was a ridiculous idea, but instead it returned to haunt Frank Jones for many years afterward. By the time the judge finished giving the jury their instructions on Saturday evening, court did not adjourn until 11.35 p.m. He suggested that the jury members retire for the night and then take up the debate in the morning. The jury, however, had been in the courtroom almost every day for the last four weeks and were anxious to get things over with. They had a brief discussion and then cast their first ballot. The vote was split with half for Jones and half for Wilkerson. They gave up for the night. On Sunday morning, the jury voted again. This time, one of those who had voted for Jones moved over to Wilkerson's side. Over a dozen votes were taken that day, and one by one, those who favored Jones gave in to the pressure and voted for Wilkerson. By 5 p.m., only one holdout remained, and at his request, a message was sent to the judge asking, quote, If we find for the defendant, will that indict the plaintiff for murder? The judge ignored the message. At 8 p.m., he called to the jury room and asked if they'd reached a verdict. They had not, so he told them to continue their deliberations. After a short time, the judge recalled them and addressed the question about whether a verdict in Wilkerson's favor was an indictment of Jones. That issue, the judge said, was not for them to consider and should not be a factor in their decision. He told them that if they found that the defendant had made statements as charged and that the evidence against Jones did not merit the statements, then the verdict should be for the plaintiff. If the defendant 
defendant had established a basis for truth in his charges, then the verdict should be in Wilkerson's favor. The one lone juror holding out for Jones did so until midnight. It was later reported by people who passed the jury room, or more likely tried to listen at the door, that loud arguments and shouts were heard that night. In the end, the holdout was finally worn down, and the jury found for Wilkerson. The slander trial had turned into a full-fledged disaster for Frank Jones. The trial turned the whispered rumors into front-page news. William Mitchell began publicly proclaiming Jones's guilt. Much was made then and later about Beeson's closing remarks, and new county attorney Oscar Winstron was forced to pay attention to it. When the trial ended, he was faced with the realization that a finding in Wilkerson's favor was only the beginning. The slander trial jury had no authority to indict Jones, but as their verdict gave credence to Wilkerson and his wild theories, Winston felt the obligation to take the matter before a jury that would be able to do so. We'll soon return for our next episode, which might best be titled Mansfield's Revenge, and we'll see things start to crumble for the notorious detective, James Wilkerson. Days of scandal, mystery, and ghosts are still ahead, so keep your eyes on the newspaper headlines and hope that no one mentions your name. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words?
The ghost of a masturbating ape haunts the hallways of a grand country estate in Dorset. Haunted Athelhampton Hall is a popular wedding venue venue with romantic spook hunters. Right. Uh, and then it says, the ghost of a randy monkey haunts the halls of a grand English country estate <laughs> where romantic spook hunters flock to tie the knot. Titillated tourists can often hear the saucy specter laughing while masturbating in Athelhampton Hall in Dorset near Dorchester. And the spooky venue has soul-searching couples clamoring to have their weddings held there in the hope of having the pervy primate, this is the sun, which is the British version of the Inquirer. Uh, okay. In hope of having the pervy primate appear in the background of their pictures. So I might start the episode with some of that and be like, if you want to listen to the whole thing, tune in at the end and I'll like play it like <laughs> yeah, the rest we'll of the article. End, the rest of the story. So that was I don't even know <laughs> yeah. what that was. Um All right, cool. You good? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ready to get going? Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in Season 3, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings. fan of monkeys. Troy Taylor. (laughs) Yes, uh, what you may have just heard in the beginning of the show, (laughs) a very weird story. Um, I think, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put a little bit in the beginning of the episode. If you want to hear the rest of the story. You want to hear the rest of the story. It's not my story. It's from the sun. It's Troy's story. So Um, you can hear it at the end of the episode. Um, Troy, okay, before I forget, I I forgot last time. Yes. Uh, I just, okay. I let a friend borrow some of this equipment <laughs> yeah, and, from Cinema Blend. And then he said, oh, my God, this stuff is garbage. It, well, yeah, yeah, oh, no, yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, good. <laughs> Guess who the last person to use that microphone that you're using was before you? Uh, who? Quentin Tarantino. No shit. No shit. Well, that's pretty cool. We interviewed Tarantino. Uh, my coworkers got to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and talked to him about that. You mentioned that. You didn't that. see it? I didn't see it, no. Oh, it was out in L.A. Uh, there were only two... Like venue people invited gotcha. us at MTV, oh, okay. um, and I was not on on our list. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but they interviewed Tarantino, and I don't I don't get to hear you. It doesn't come out till July twenty fifth. But uh, he was the last person before you to use that oh, microphone. Well, cool, isn't that cool? That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, yeah, <laughs> Tarantino. Well, he likes to hear himself talk, and so do I. So hey. yeah, there you go. Anyway, aside from that event, we have other events. What, yes, uh, what's we do. Um, well, we got a lot. We just posted our fall events a couple weeks ago, um, and a lot of them are already filling up, and some are even sold out already, which is not. This doesn't usually happen this early. What do you think's going on? I, I don't know. Um, maybe people are just excited about stuff that's coming out. I don't know. But normally they don't fill up quite this fast. We only have four of those Ghosts of the River Road tours that we do. We had one more in the summer, but it's already gone. Um, so we've still got a couple more, uh, four of them in the fall, and they're filling up. And then we booked some new, um, those evening with things that I started doing earlier yep. this year, the you know Lizzie Board and the Axeman and stuff. So we added some, and we added a couple of new ones that we hadn't done before. And um, one of those sold out completely. And now the second one that we added that was the limp family. Now it's almost full too. So all I'm thinking is I know it's still summer. I know you're hearing this, you know, at the end of July, but 
we're we're starting to fill up for the fall. Sure. So it's something to keep in mind. Our our tours, our regular tours, the walking tours and the bus tours in Alton go on sale um, August 12th and in Decatur, August 12th. Um, and the Decatur tours, you know, we we do those only at Halloween now. That's our that was our original tour. And we started those in 93. So I don't know, 26 years. I wasn't 20, even yeah. born yet. Yeah. So we started and those things, they fill up fast um, and because we just don't do that many of them. But they they go on sale August 12th. So if you're thinking you'd like to experience that, you know, while we're still doing them, because one of these days, John Winterbauer is just going to just give Call up, give up on the tour uh, and probably die on the tour. Um, so would like yeah, that, I know he would. So John's great. Guy. I know. So it's it's you know, if you're going to do it, you may want to think about doing it at some point here soon. Yep. Uh, yeah. Anyway, and we also have a bunch of ghost hunts up uh, sure. all of our fall ghost hunts. We put up um, in Alton and Iowa and Indiana and original Springs hotel in, in Oakville, Illinois, and a, a bunch of stuff. I mean, there's too many of them to even just list them all, but, sure. um, you know, it's going to be fall soon, believe it or not. Um, right. and you know, a couple weeks after everybody hear this, Lisa will be going back to school. Yeah. So I Every, know everybody always like September 25th, people are like, Hey, we want to do something for Halloween. Yeah, you guys well, have any stuff open? I'm like, no, it's too late. It's yeah. All it's, done. it's just too late by then. So it's, I mean, fall is rapidly approaching. Um, it just seems like it. the summers go faster and faster every year. Sure. But anyway, um, so, you know, if, if you're thinking about wanting to do something with us, you know, get it planned. Where, and where it's do they time. find tickets for this? Um, you can go to either altonhauntings.com or really, I would just send everybody to americanhauntings.net. Um, that's your best bet. Um, you can get to everywhere from there. So everything has a, a link or, a, you know, something about it, a post sure. about it on our main page. Right. And so. then the, the weekly emails that I send out about, or I'm sorry, the biweekly emails I send out about the podcast, podcast. will we'll tend to have some links to some of these events, but definitely right. not everything. Not all of them. Right. Um, right. Especially if it's not something that like I'm doing or a very right. hyper local right. thing. So check well, out we've got a websites. newsletter link at the top of the American Hauntings page. Perfect. There's a link that says newsletter at the top of the page that you can get on there. Subscribe. It's free. Um, and that just keeps you up to date on the new stuff that we've got coming out. I send out a little, a lot of little news flash things mm -hmm. when something new comes up. And then we do larger emails every once in a while too. Do you put so. your jokes at the bottom? That I put me? no jokes on there. Oh, so, all right. Yeah, well, for good reason. Okay. So yeah, well, that's They're not fair. funny. Well, so, you don't want the unsubscribe Although, so. right, exactly, exactly. Although there was this duck that walked into a bar. No. Oh, no. Was oh, this Gandhi Guapes? Are we doing that? <laughs> yeah. No, there's no time for that. No, there really isn't time, which is how I yeah. should start. Should I, are you going to do something else or should I just go ahead and start with my apology? Well, I was going to apologize. You start for no, you. Well, no, you, you usually like to do our, our ghost, uh, some of our ghost writers and stuff at the beginning. Um, oh, I'm sorry. So yeah, let's no, do right. that real yeah, quick we're gonna and do, then I will just go ahead and issue my yes, apology. Okay. We're so. going to do, we're going to do listener reviews yeah, first. Okay. Right. So oh, we, yeah, we I have, couldn't remember what it was. I know it's I've reviews. introduced so much crazy stuff to this show. Okay. Um, so the, we have a bunch of them today, but, uh, these are all reviews pulled from iTunes. Uh, again, thank you for leaving iTunes reviews, especially five star. They really help people find the show. Um, this first one says, okay, I just finished Ben's list binge listening to all the podcasts the last three weeks while at work. I appreciate that. Um, all I have to say is awesome. Cody and Troy, you both are great to listen to, along with some of the extras who came on board during the podcast. One podcast I'd love to hear is The Haunted President. I've read that book twice now and found it very interesting. Enjoyed the historical aspects included in it. 
Also, uh, being from Southern Illinois, I'd love to hear some of the stories you've got in books, uh, especially at Phantom Funeral. I know many of the people who have reenacted at Fort Day Chart. Chart? I don't yeah, know. Fort Chart. There you yeah. go. Um, including my husband and myself. Uh, and they have admitted to seeing something, but it's just not just not sure what they really saw. Keep up the great podcast. Can't wait to hear more. That's from Easta's fan. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, okay. So this next one is titled great listen, great stories. I just love these podcasts. They're so interesting and, uh, incredibly well researched. So Troy, shout out to you. Troy has so many details at his fingertips. I almost uh, feel like I was there. If you enjoy history, true crime and who doesn't and great ghost stories, these are for you. I especially enjoy the discussions in the second half because the things we might not grasp certain elements of the discussion explain so much as to the why that's going to be this episode. Troy is a constant storyteller and I do think Cody is funny. So it's me, you, my mom. I got three. Let's thank you so much. That's from uh, my Sarah laughs. Uh, and yeah, this episode will be a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, this next one comes from Matthew D. Jacksonable. I love that these names can be whatever people want. Um, so he says, you guys are rocking it out. 100% enjoyable. Makes me want to forgive 99% of Troy's dismissive views on the ghost box. Oh, yeah, that's work. right. I saw that, too. And, and you know, and it's funny. And he's he's being funny. But, uh, dude, I wrote that book in, like, 2010. I want you to think back. Can you give me some context? Yeah, he's. No, go ahead and read the rest sure. of it, and I'll explain. Okay, so. Yeah. Now, I, I want to explain because okay, I sure. saw that and I laughed and I know what he's saying. So, uh, 100% enjoyable. Makes me want to forgive 99.9% of Troy's dismissive views on the ghost box work in the Ghost Hunters Guidebook. Thank you for your efforts. I totally appreciate and recommend to anyone that enjoys the paranormal, haunted lore, and bloody axes. That's from Matthew uh, W.D. Jacksonable. Give me, yeah, give me some well, context. No, I, yeah, and I know exactly what he's saying, because, but I want you to remember that was in 2010 when the last edition of that book Before came out. It's not even printed now. We weren't, you weren't I know, born. I know, I know. And it's not even in print anymore because it's old. And, uh, you know, in 2010, I want you to think back to the ghost boxes that were around at the time. They were garbage. Yeah. And I mean garbage. Are they better now? And you though? couldn't, yeah, they're better now. Uh, they're a know. lot better. There's a lot more... You know, there's a lot higher tech stuff now than mm -hmm. there was then. And the stuff that was was really questionable 10 years ago. So that's where that that's where that came from. And I know he's not being it. He's not being a jerk. Right. I, 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 th I thought that was funny when I read it. But I thought, man, I got to say, you know, in my defense. Yeah. That was 2010. Hey, so. that, sh that shows a true fan, though. You oh, know, yeah. No, no, no. Stuff. And I, I just, I thought it was funny. And, so and it's I titled did, a so. five-star podcast with a one-star comment. Yeah, right. Exactly. Love. That was good. Uh, so, Matthew, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, the next comment comes from Shock and Terror 81. It says, the best in history, hauntings, and lore. I came to your podcast last year, but I was quickly sucked in and uh, binge listened to every episode. I've read books by Troy in the past, and I've always been interested in the paranormal and mysterious happenings. This podcast is such a fantastic mix of history and the paranormal. Upon listening, one can instantly tell that the creators love the content and bring you the best they can with each episode. I will forever be a, to steal a term from Stephen King's fans, constant listener. Capital C, capital L. Thank you for giving us fans of the unexplained and the mysterious another outlet to indulge in. Keep up the phenomenal work. Troy, Cody, and Lisa are the absolute best. Guys, that's us. <laughs> that's us. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Shock and Terror 81. This next one comes from, it says, the, the best I've found, it comes from 15M3GH. 
I don't I know. I know. Yeah, there's no way. I don't know. know what you're going for, but no. I appreciate it. Uh, love history and ghosts, and this show blends the two beautifully. The stories are well-researched and delivered in an interesting way. Love the way you play off of each other and uh, the humor that you introduce. We don't play off each other. We, we are not friends. <laughs> we don't like each other. We just get together all the time. Um, but thank you so much for your review. I really appreciate it. Uh, the last one I have is, I've given up uh, radio in the car. I love this show. And this is from Patty K 59 The best thing ever to listen to just happened across this podcast and noticed the first episodes were about Alton, Illinois, which is so close to my hometown. Fell in love with the stories. Thank you so much for listening and for writing reviews. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're getting up there, man, with the reviews. Yeah, we're almost so. at like 500 cool. five-star reviews. Good and uh, we really appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you everybody for listening and for, for giving us the reviews. Uh, okay, now are you ready for my apology? Yes. So the listen, guys, I need tour. to apologize for everyone for the length of this episode. Um, and for all of the numerous characters and moving parts. Um, This was a tough episode to put together because um, while it's it's very long and there's a lot going on with this episode, um, I actually, this is about, seriously, this is a third of the material. I had to cut and cut and cut to streamline this thing so that we could make it into an episode because we... I don't even know how long it would have been otherwise. So my my thing is, is that I did try to get everything in here that we could to make sure that the story moved. But if you want the whole thing, I mean, seriously, read it in the book because it's a really long chunk of the book. But it's some really it was really interesting stuff and it was hard to cut it because... I mean, as Cody kept saying, I I just kept saying this was a brutal episode and Cody, I think, described it perfectly as a shit show. And it must have been to be there in person. I would have loved to have been in the courtroom for this. So much fun. You know, stealing the attorney's chairs. That was was one of my favorite parts. They were letting everybody sit everywhere until finally the judge said, okay, no, nobody gets to come out here anymore. It was like November, a couple days into it. It was like, (laughs) all right, we got to stop this. Yeah, we got to stop this. I got people sitting in front of the judge's bench. You know, can you imagine the witnesses must have been like, weaving between people sitting on the floor just to get to the stand, right. you know, but so finally moved everybody back after they started stealing the attorney seats at the tables. And it's just like, you know, this must've been insane. It had it to have pro- been crazy. The event. Yeah, I mean, it, there was the murder and then been. this trial, yeah, right? Yeah. So, uh, because everybody wanted to hear if there was any truth behind the rumors. I mean, that was, that was the whole point of people showing anyway, but my point is before we, we, dive into it. And we're going to try to keep this moving along here too, is, uh, I'm sorry it was so long. Um, but I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it was fun to do. I gotta say, I had a lot of fun recording it. It took me a really long time to get the initial story recorded, but I, I anyway, it was fun. And I, I hope you, I hope you enjoyed it. And hopefully maybe we can clear up a little bit of the, um, some of the confusion in the story as we talk about it. So we'll see. So sure. anyway, we, we, we got to get going that's going to be like a three hour episode. If we right. So. And, and I'm going to, like the way I did this is I, I took Troy's, um, monologue and I made my outline for it and it took me, uh, two days pretty much. And I, <laughs> I literally, and I, I've been up since six this morning do, going over this again and I have way too much detail. I'm going to talk to you about stuff. And if you think it's interesting and we should go into it, or if I think it's interesting, we will, if not, we're going to kind of move on because yeah, there's so much. I know there's just not so important. much and right. And, and a lot of it, 
a lot. I, I cut out as much of it that wasn't important. I mean, because I know it's there were segments. Though, I know, I but there were that. segments where I said 14 witnesses call him to the stand. Well, in the book, you could find out what all of those 14 people had to say, but I could not put that in here because a lot of it was at least repetitive enough that right. we didn't have to keep beating it to death. Sure. So, so it's, yeah. I tried to really get the important stuff out of this. Trial. Right. And you did. So. And, and we're going to talk, we're going to talk about so much, but going into this, I'm going to be honest. I saw Troy always sends me his monologues uh, in like a Google doc. I saw a 22 page outline, which is, <laughs> it's just big for, for yeah, us. It is. And I've seen a couple so. almost that close, maybe with like uh, exorcist stuff. Yeah. Or, or we had a long exorcist. One but was, when I started getting through this and I realized it was, all a trial. I was like one trial. I was like, God yeah. damn it, Troy. But I, the, I put it all in one thing. But the yeah. more I got into it, I was like, I'm into this case. Yeah. And I was yeah. excited about it. And so what I did is the second time around, um, I kind of organized some of these characters and I have like Team Jones, Team Wilson. Right. I'm not right. gonna go through everything, but I think it would help if real quick I give a like three or four people from each thing just so you can kind of keep sure, this sure. brief. So for, for Frank Jones, we have, we have Frank Jones, who's the businessman, politician. He's accused of hiring uh, Mansfield to commit multiple murders, including the more Stillinger murders in Villisca. And he's the one who's filing this, this slander case uh, against, um, James against, against James Wilkerson right. on team Jones. We, we have William Mansfield, essentially the kind of is the guy yeah, who never shows up, but Never shows there. up, but he's the guy he's that mentioned. is yes. assumed to be the hitman. Um, but more importantly, we have R.W. Beeson, who's Jones' attorney in the slander case, and then Ralph Pringle, which I will get to that last name, um, is is the other attorney. I don't think he invented the chips. If that's where we're going, well, I have funnier, so. I have funnier jokes than that. But um, and then for Team Wilkerson, we have James Wilkerson. He's the private investigator for the Burns Agency. He's not a good guy. I'm just going to say that now, and he's the one who's accused of slander by Frank Jones. In this episode, at, yes. at this point, um, well, his his attorneys are William Edward Mitchell. That's an attorney that was hired by the Burns a- Burns Agency because they're like, we have to keep our reputation right. here. Okay, so those are the important players. There's a bunch of other people, but it, it, Wilkerson has like Vena Tompkins, Alice Willard. Oh, sure, we'll get into that later. But yeah. I just I think the attorneys were something that was kind of hard for me to yeah, keep, it is. keep straight. It so is. I just wanted to yeah. get ahead of those. Um, okay, so. What happened is in the last episode, they tried to indict Mansfield, took him before a grand jury, and finally let him off the hook. Said, this is this is yeah. done. Uh, but be, leading up to that and during that, Wilkerson was basically talking a bunch of shit, and it was upsetting Frank Jones. And he said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sue this guy. And finally, he decides to. And the attorneys that he gets say, this is not a good idea. You could just sue him for slander. This is bad. It's really hard to prove. It's very hard to prove. Yeah. And what I realized th- throughout reading all this is this is risky for Jones because while a loss in the slander case doesn't equal an indictment of murder on his part, it opens him up for one. And it's tough for Jones' attorneys because what they're trying to prove is that People heard Wilkerson slandering Jones. And by slandering, I mean they heard Wilkerson saying that Jones had paid someone to have J.B. Moore killed. And even if they prove the point they're trying to make, it's still in the jury's head now. Right. Frank Jones paid someone kill, right. you know, these people. And so it's the, the loss here is potentially devastating for Jones, which we'll get into later. Um, Mitchell says he, he was not only going to disprove the slander, but that he was going to prove Wilkerson's theory was true. Meaning I'm not only going to say that we're not slandering you, I'm going to prove that you yeah. hired someone well, to kill and he, people. And he really kind of has to at least try because if he doesn't try, then they're, you know, they're, they're admitting defeat. Sure. So, 
you know, by him saying, well, you know, he said these things and the reason he said them is because he believes them to be true. Right. That's why this is so hard to prove. Sure. That's why slander is so tough to prove because you can say anything you want about somebody and they can get mad. But if you truly believe it, then it will be ruled that it's not. True. Now, I'm not sure that Wilkerson, by this point, he may have convinced himself because all these conspiracy people are crazy. And so eventually they start to believe their own press. And that may have been what happened. But in the beginning, I believe that this was he was just looking for the limelight and is still looking for the limelight. And he's looking for a way to make money off this trial. And by going after someone who is as prominent, as wealthy as Frank Jones, he was going to make money. And I think he tried blackmailing him. Mm -hmm. And when that didn't work. He's kept this thing going because he can't stop now, you know, and maybe he's finally convinced himself it's true. I don't probably not, but it's possible. But, but if they can show that he believes what he's saying or that there is reasonable doubt that he believes what he's saying, then Jones was going to lose. Right. And so that's why his attorneys kept saying, this is a bad idea. Let's not do this. And right. initially the lawsuit was against pretty much everybody, people. his entire Wilkerson's entire base in town, uh, including Ross Moore. And I mean, that's that's a bad look. You right. don't want to sue your minister and you don't want to sue, you know, the brother of, you know, the brother and uncle of all of these people. It's, that very, were murdered. it's a very impulsive act yeah. on his part. And I'm so sure he's angry. he, you know, he he pulled back on that. And then just went after Wilkerson, which I think was le- legitimate, but still a bad idea. He should have, and we'll get to this at the end, but he should have just let it go. He should have just ignored just, it. He, he should have just kept ignoring it like he'd been doing for four years. He should have just beat the hell out of the guy in the back alley Well, somewhere. yeah, or just had him whacked. Right, so. uh, which, honestly. Um, so I was doing this outline um, yesterday and then this morning, and last night I had a buddy come over who's, who's a lawyer. He was in my apartment, and um, basically by the end of this, I was like, your job must be terrible oh, no going kidding, through right. all of these details. And I asked them a, a lot of questions about this. And, um, you know, we're going to get into later. There's a seven hour testimony. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, even he said, you know, if we have an expert witness. Oh, that's you can very go for typical. days. But even with yeah. the layperson, he said, that's very, very typical. And I was like, seven hours. And I was yeah. like, why? And, and he explained to me, um, First, you have to lay a lot of foundations. Right. You have to, um, he said, you can't Yeah, aren't ask- you glad I didn't put all that in the story? Well, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I fell asleep when he was telling me. Um, and he said something about, um, you can't typically ask compound questions. So it's very much, where'd you go to school? Right. Yes. What did you study? Yeah. And so one at a time, one at a time, right. laying foundation and then getting, you know, establishing credibility and all that. And I was like, this is awful. And, and so no wonder that this um, drug on for so long. And I, I'm legally obligated to say I'm not a representative of Johnson and Johnson and Procter and Gamble or wherever the <laughs> fuck he works. I don't know. Um, so that's just a joke, but it was very interesting talking to him about some of this stuff and, and tossing some of these things out there and asking him, you know, Hey, I know this was, over a hundred years ago, but you know, what do you think about this and this and this? So let's go for it. Velisca, uh, 19, 1916, George Cawson failed in his bid for the governor's nomination. Horace Havner, a lawyer from Iowa city, uh, became the next attorney general in November. County attorney Gillette lost his job to Oscar Winstrand. All these sound like made up names. To me. I know, right? Um, a young lawyer from Red Oak who was uh, soon going to need all the courtroom experience <laughs> that he had. Well, because this, there's more trials coming. Sure, right. Because one of our favorite characters will make a return soon, too. And you kind of, so, you mentioned that a little yeah. bit in the last episode, right? No. So, so okay. Oh, no, I'm not even talking about Wayne Mansfield. Oh. I'm talking about really our, our favorite perv. Oh, okay. Kelly's coming back? Yeah, he'll be back. Nice. So. Okay. All right. So, Frank Jones versus Wilkerson. 
UFC one. <laughs> I don't know. This is a long time ago. So Jones hires his own detectives to dig up dirt on Wilkerson, including Thomas O'Leary, who is from the what, original investigation. Yeah. He uh, he picked two attorneys to handle his lawsuit, uh, R.W. Beeson and Ralph Pringle, both from Red Oak. And my joke was, this is where they got the jingle, once you pop, the fun don't stop. <laughs> and, Le- and then Leah said, once you chop, the fun don't stop. And it just kind of <laughs> yeah, kept, kept, kept going. Um, both men thought it was a bad idea and that slander would be hard to prove. Um, it kind of seems like, I said, like with this one, Jones went the opposite way of Wilkerson as far as the grand jury thing. Like he hired very, very talented people um, for, for this case. I was wondering with the, with the grand jury case, Wilkerson pulls in like these new people. And it's like, did he just not have a lot of resources or what, what was the issue? Well, no, the grand jury is not, you don't pick lawyers for that. The grand jury is the district attorney at the time. Oh, and the okay. district attorney at the time was that you're kind of stuck with, right. You're, there. You're, that he's the guy that presents the case, but you know that, but there are no defense attorneys allowed in. I mean, it's just the prosecutor talking to the grand jury. To see if they want That's to why there's always been the joke about how, you know, a, a good prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich because okay. they have all the control over the, they're, they're the ones who ask the questions. They present the evidence. But the point is, is that with that Mansfield grand jury is that the evidence was so poor. It's a newspaper article. Yeah. It was so bad that the grand jury wouldn't even indict. I mean, it's it's a lot easier to get someone indicted than it is to get someone found guilty at trial. Sure. Because you only present your evidence. Right. Um, you don't the defense doesn't get to present evidence other than the, you know, Mansfield could present his stuff that his attorney had gotten for him to say, here are my work records. He can say those things to defend himself. Mm-hmm. But you can't. It's not a trial. I it's think it's not a trial. I think when my, my friend might have been talking about this last night and I might be taking this out of context. But his thing was with these trials, it's. Uh, you're, you start on the 50-yard line, and all you have to do is get the ball moved three yards, yeah. not to well, the end zone. To right, get right. To because a trial. this is not a this is not a this is a jury trial, but it's not a criminal trial. Right, right. This you know it is a it's it's a trial where someone is suing someone else. Sure. So that's why, like for instance, um, the O.J. Simpson trial. I'm gonna pick a really famous one um, that ended up with that. A, right. It ended up. It started it was with a criminal trial, and he was found not guilty because no one understood DNA evidence at the time. The um, don't. I know, but the, you know, it was. It, can you can you say with be, uh, beyond all doubt that you know this blood belonged to you know O.J. Simpson? Uh, well, there's a you know one in an eight million chance it isn't his. Oh, so there is a chance. Sure. Because so people didn't people didn't understand DNA evidence. Didn't they confuse then. them on purpose with that? Yeah, oh, too, sure, absolutely, it because new. it was so new. Sure. Um, you know, CSI hadn't come on yet, so no one understood right. it. Um, anyway, experts. Yeah, right. Anyway, um, so, but he was found not guilty, but then uh, the family sued him in a civil trial, and they found him to be responsible for the murders. Right, which is so very, very, this very is different. A, but this subtle. is a civil trial, so you don't have to have a preponderance of evidence. Mm-hmm. You don't really have to prove anything. You just have to convince the jury to right. your side, right. um, which is how, how this ended up the way that it did. Yeah. Um, I still don't understand how it ended up the way that it did, but they confuse the jury at the end yes. when they confuse. Well, we'll get to that. Right. Uh, and I mean, since everybody's already heard your monologue, they know, yeah, they know what ends. happened. But right. I, I asked last night, I said, say that, um, say that Jones won the case um, uh, of slander, or, you know, saying that Wilkerson slandered him. 
and then later Jones was indicted on those murders. He, I, I said, I don't think he would have. I know, but I, I said, yeah. would Wilkerson then be able to go back and say, hey, this shouldn't have been slander because I was speaking the truth? And he said, yeah, he yeah, totally he would have grounds he to go have back sued on and his overturn. Own. Right, right. Right. Okay. So um, enough hi- hyperbole. Yeah, so yeah. Wilkerson is building a loyal group of followers. He holds a meeting in the uh, what you assume to be the Stillinger's cow pasture. Yeah, it's probably thought because it was all they said it was a pasture outside of town and that's right. where his property was and he had become a supporter of Wilkerson. He's a grieving father, frustrated. Yeah, I mean, I think years. a lot of people ended up that way. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I would be, yeah, I'd be open to any theories that come my way after years. Why not? You know, if nothing ever happened. Um, so this was all, uh, this was all that Frank's attorneys needed though, to file a lawsuit in October, 1916. They went after Wilkerson, Ross Moore, Reverend Ewing, a couple others, uh, but eventually pulled it back to Wilkerson, like you said. Uh, even so, Frank would later say that the, the slander suit was the biggest mistake that he ever made. Um, Burns Agency was worried about their rep if Wilkerson lost. They hired the, the trial attorney they mentioned earlier, Mitchell. Um, or I'm sorry, William Edward Mitchell. And I wanted to know, why do all old-timey people have three names? <laughs> like, why is that a thing? <laughs> that they use it? I don't know. Yeah. Same just, reason assassins do, I guess. Right, yeah, you know? yeah. John Wilkerson. And serial killers. you got to have the three you know, names. So. Uh, they would Mark hear, David Chapman. They'd hear my know. middle name and be like, Ew, John Wayne Gacy. We can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you got any others? No, you good? Okay. I've got more, but I'll leave it alone. <laughs> Um, okay, so he re, uh, M- Mitchell referred to himself as a, oh, just a country lawyer, uh, but the truth was that Mitchell was smart, quick, and experienced and successful as a defense attorney well, and a he prosecutor. Was, he was a sleazy attorney. I mean, it's well, I'm you know, curious. I mean, I don't even know that he was sleazy. He was just good at his job, Does, and that's it. Doesn't matter, you know, who he represented. He's just doing his job. Well, yeah. Know, so. Well, I mean, it's it's his job to defend people right. and, you know, right. pr- other people and prove to guilty. do whatever he has to, to defend he, his client. It, am I wrong in this? He reminds me of Lane Smith from My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if that's accurate. I, yeah, it kind um, of is. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, okay, so he was he was not only going to disprove the slander, but that Wilkerson's theory was true, which is a step further than, you know, this thing needs to be. And the trial ends up turning into a disaster for Frank Jones. Uh, people, reporters, they all flock to the town. And then Clarence Miller, former editor of the Red Oak newspaper, was hired by the Villisca Review as a special correspondent. Right. Uh, he was eventually named secretary of Wilkerson's Protective yeah, Association. Yeah, it was, it was a very biased, a lot of biased reporting going on. Sure. And, you know. Sure. Well, I'm glad that that stuff's done today. Um, so the trial, uh, Tuesday, November 14th, Beeson's open, uh, Beeson opens the trial and he says, we will show that this man Wilkerson has worked two years to frame up a case and convict an innocent man. Mitchell eventually rebuttals and sa- uh, he says, uh, Vena Tompkins has been kidnapped by Senator oh, Comfort yeah. Harvey Van Law in order to keep her from testifying at the trial. That's going to be a whole other thing later. Offers multiple reasons why the grand jury hadn't indicted Jones. He's trying to kind of confuse people on purpose. Um, and just something to keep in mind here, the, the grand jury trial, that was very not public. People didn't right. really it's know. It's just a hearing. It's not a trial. It's or, just yes, a hearing yes. on whether they would indict. But grand, grand jury testimony is always kept secret. Mm-hmm. It's not released to the public. So we don't really know what happens in any grand jury, except when the witnesses left, they were able to talk about it. It just would never be filed as a public record. Mm-hmm. So the reporters only had what they were told. So and really what most people knew is that they did not they did not find a reason to hold William Mansfield over for trial. That's really what all people knew. So 
at this trial, the attorneys could recall people who testified against Mansfield and, you know, at the grand jury and no one would ever know what they talked about, which is how we ended up with Alice Willard. Wouldn't know if their you testimony know. was inadmissible right, or ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Or that they lied or that they admitted. They got a practice run. Yeah. I mean, yeah, essentially they did. And, you know, some of them would later come back and say, oh, well, that's, you know, I know that's not what I said at this, but I lied. You know, Avina Tompkins just you know, constantly. Is, per, is that know, not perjury in the grand jury no, trial? Well, or? you know, she never said she lied to the grand jury, even though she did, but. Lying to police is she, still a crime. Well, right I know, there. but she didn't. Um, no, I think that's just federal. That's a federal thing. Oh, okay. Um, I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, if you lie to the FBI, you, you can go to jail. I don't think it's. Wait, so just I can the lie to police. the cops? I, what have I, I been doing? Yeah, I, I believe so, but I'm not positive on that. I'm um, just, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on right, TV. Yeah, exactly. Um, Anyway, you know, she told so many stories about, well, I, you know, I talked to Frank Jones or I talked to the senator or whatever, but I lied. You know, everything I told him was a lie. And it's like, why in the world would anyone believe anything you're saying now? Yeah. You know, so well, it kind of seems like at that point they keep bringing her up because it's like, you know what? Let's lean into the mass confusion and yeah, well, try sure, to muddy the waters. Sure. And, yeah. And, it, and it, I think it worked. Yeah. Uh, so November 15th, most of the trial was just calling witnesses who had heard Wilkerson slandering right, Jones. Right. Uh, November 16th, you mentioned earlier, but it kind of turned into standing room only. Um, and there were two days of witnesses uh, who had heard Wilkerson talking right, shit, essentially, right. and, and uh, yeah, slandering. So November 18th. I mean, that was pretty much the defense's only. Well, that's what they put on. Right. Like they put, at this point, they weren't cross-examining anybody. They were just putting on people who just got up and said, I heard James Wilkerson say this awful thing about Frank Jones. Right. That was two days of the trial. Right. Because so, he did which, it a lot. Yeah. Repetitive. And I'm sure that had to not been all that exciting because right. everybody had already heard that stuff. But people kept coming anyway. Sure. So. Yeah. So November 18th, defense begins. Uh, Mitchell calls by revisiting the murders. He calls in uh, Dr. Cooper and a Sylvester Cooney who hired a cleanup. Is Cooney the guy who burned all the mattresses? Yeah, that guy who cleaned everything up. Got it. Okay. Right. Okay. There's there's more witnesses. Well, they're just trying to set stages there. Sure. Because they're, they're going to bring back things that you know, later. Exactly. You got to lay the groundwork. The and, and then they keep, call, yeah, they keep calling people back, calling people back. Yeah. Um, he then calls in uh, Otto Wilt, who is the police chief of Blue Island. Um, and he brings in the bloody axe from the Mislick murders. Yeah. This guy, this guy, I don't know how he got away with this. I mean, he knew that Mansfield had been cleared. Right. But I don't know why he came or they must have paid him. I was going to say the price is right. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting that he brought the axe with him. Well, you shock know, value, uh, like you I said. guess. Yeah. But, you know, and then he just got up to say, you know, he never mentioned that he'd been cleared. All he got up to say is, well, you know, he could have done this. Well, yeah, but he didn't. Right. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, know. just nobody has a spine in this, I feel like. Uh, November 20th, Vina Tompkins. So she takes a this stand. This is her first time she on had, the stand. She, she gives a, again, vague story. There's a couple points I want to hit on this. She admitted that the only reason she told Wilkerson about the details of the incident was because a fortune teller told her to do so. <laughs> right. Red flag. Yeah. Uh, she then claimed that she had not told everything she knew to the Mansfield grand jury because she was asked not to. Red flag. Yeah. Uh, Frank's lawyer says she was not kidnapped. Confusing part of the trial. That, more red flags. Uh, yeah. Complete. Everything she did was a red yeah. flag. Yeah. Wilkerson had told her, she said that if questioned, she should never tell the truth about the case. Right. And then again, you mentioned this is at least the fifth time at that Vina Tompkins' story had been changed, either by Wilkerson or by Tompkins herself. Yeah. So was she ever kidnapped? Ever? Uh, she was never. I don't believe she was ever kidnapped. That that senator, that, that Van Law, they did have a later conversation. Said he had a conversation with her because 
he couldn't believe she was telling the story. Right. And it was obviously not true. And so he's, you know, is questioning her about the story, but he never kidnapped her or anything else. Right. I mean, it, it was this woman is so full. And of course, we don't know how many of her stories were all her own concoctions or I, I'm Wilkerson. sure a lot of it had to do with Wilkerson sure. feeding her stuff to, to talk about to make her story more exciting. I also think that she was having such a good time being the center the of attention, attention yeah. that she just just her story just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. And it made her, you know, I'm sure that all of her friends and, you know, low life neighbors and everybody were, you know, hanging on her every word. Cause I mean, how many times you think she told this story at home? Oh, right. You know, or a version of the story, sure. because like I said, that was at least the fifth time she's told it, uh, you know, to the police or on the witness stand okay. that it's been different. You start to, be- well, you, yeah. start, you start to believe your yeah. own kind of hype. Own, when you do your that. own hype. Um, yeah. Another person who become very, pertinent to this case, Alice Willard, uh, who had been discredited during the grand jury trial, but, but nobody knew that. Know that. Right. She then added to her story and claimed that she received threatening letters after her grand jury testimony. Because by then people were starting to hear her story about how she was walk, you know, in the alley. Yes. I mean, and that's, we talked about that last time that, you know, she was in the alley and overheard, you know, this group of men talking and one of them was Frank Jones and that she, you know, heard them plotting the murder of J.B. Moore. So many conversations overheard. Yeah. Oh, I know. I, and I mentioned that. Yeah. I mentioned that in the, in, the, in the story is that, you know, everybody in Villisca overheard some kind of story at one point. And it's just like these, all these stories that started popping up about the, you know, all the witnesses that came forward that had stories to tell about seeing the, you know, William Mansfield walking around town and so and it's like right. it's like everyone in the neighborhood had never told these stories before. Sure. But since Vena Tompkins and Alice Willard were getting all this attention, well, why not me? Give me I've my got a good minutes. story yeah. too. So I'm gonna come tell this story. Right. You know, and the guy who said he saw, you know, uh, Albert Jones go into to, uh, but he never yes. mentioned it before in four years right. to go into J.B. Well, he Moore's stayed house. silent for five minutes on the but, stand. But too, was right? it? What was right? Because he didn't want to say it was Albert Jones, and you know. But what I did find interesting though was that. You know, people were claiming that they saw, you know, William Mansfield and I identified him in pictures. But I like the stories of the couple of stories that were told about the people who did see a strange man in town. Yes. Who may have been our guy. Well, the the, the night watchman guy. Yeah. And um, the other guy that saw someone walking. Plus, they also think Ed Landers. It didn't see Albert Jones. Mm-hmm. He saw this heavy set man that he thought was Albert Jones. And it may have been our guy. Right. Um, because it, it matched, as I pointed out, it matched the description. That Colorado the, Springs. Colorado Springs guy had seen. Yes. So someone actually may have seen our guy going to the house that night. Yeah, but we and, don't want those but, details muddled. Yeah, in right. But let's not mix it up with you know that the fact that it must be Albert Jones and so William Mansfield. Don't let Mansfield. the truth to get in the yeah, front get of in the way story. of a good story. Exactly. exactly. Uh, so. Okay. So November twenty first through the twenty third, these kind of three days might get a little murky. So just forgive me, but uh, the judge finally has to make some rules regarding seating because like stuff, stuff's <laughs> getting know. out of hand. Um, Alice Willard gets sick and like doesn't show. Right. And then. And you basically said 14 others testified in their place. Oh, man. A bunch of bullshit gets told after four years of basically silence. And it just was crazy. The last person, though, you mentioned, Charles N. Fessler. He was the undertaker who prepared J.B. Moore's body for burial. I'm curious. Do you know undertakers? How do you get into that job? Is it a family thing? Well, I mean, back then, uh, so we're 1916. So undertaking as a job didn't really start until the 1860s and 70s. I mean, everybody who's heard me do that evening with the dead thing mm-hmm. knows the story. But um, that was it, that is a fairly new profession as far as 
you know, in history. Sure. Uh, because people did, didn't embalm people or anything until that time. It wasn't yeah. until around the Civil War that they started doing that. So a lot of the first undertakers were usually like furniture guys, cabinet makers and stuff, because they started making coffins, mm. which were, you know, basically a cabinet. Might as well take the next um, step. And then... As time went on into the 1870s and 80s, they started, you know, kind of perfecting the embalming science, which is basically the same now as it was then. From all the head? Yeah, it was all pretty much the same from, from you know, 150 years ago. Um, but anyway, you know, undertakers, you know, were now are today's funeral home directors. Um, except back in this time period, the undertaker uh, served, I think, a greater purpose because they were at least legitimately doing services that people needed to pay for, where now it's, you know, 50% legitimate and 50 cent a big scam. It's almost like you have a book about this. Well, I, yeah, we do have a book about this. And interestingly, something came up just this past week about undertakers or funeral home directors yeah. that were charging, they're charging a hundred dollars a person to witness a cremation. That's not to do it. That's Is not that why the April price. Went the, yeah, to the, that's that why. Cremation? Well, April went to a friend's creation oh, to okay. as a support. Sure, okay. but they charged the family a hundred dollars to have her come there. I'll go do it for free. Yeah, well, I know, but that's my my point is is that this is has gotten out of hand. What's the book? Disconnected from death? Disconnected from Death. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, anyway, we really went on a tangent sure. there. But yeah, they did call him in because they needed somebody. I mean, there was no like coroner. Right. You know, I mean, it was the undertaker and the doctors who came in to examine the house in the first place. That's as close as you had to something like that. You know, they would have an inquest, a coroner's inquest, but I mean, the coroner usually was just the doc, some doctor in town. Right. Well, they called him in to ask him about the skull. Okay. Because we talked about that way early on. Burt McCall was a friend of Albert Jones who had piece of shit. Yeah. Who's yeah. Was kind of a scumbag and had gotten into the house and had picked up a souvenir. Now he claimed it came from the alley. Say, what I'm do you sure believe? it came out of the house. You think it was legit? And I think he brought it to the, and, well, it might have been or it might not have been. Um, but he, my guess, he put it in a cigar box mm-hmm. at his billiard hall where I'm sure people were giving him a dime or a nickel right. or something so they could see yeah, it. it you know, sure. and so he tried to clean this up in his testimony later about, oh, no, no, I, I you know, I was just, you know, just I just like heard this. It just looked like it, you know. Yeah. And, and obviously it was. I mean, it was somebody's skull piece sure. of somebody's skull, whether it was JB's or some other member of the family, it was somebody's right. he either found in the house or he found it out in the yard. Because if you remember when they cleaned out the house and they took the mattress out in the uh, yard and yeah. they shook it out and it still had bone fragments and stuff in it because Jeez. there was no, there was no CSI team back right. there. They didn't come in and collect all that As stuff. As you're running over that with the lawnmower. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So. Yeah. So, and that's interesting because I didn't really put it all together, but Wilkerson's theory about the bone fragment was that it had been picked up by the killer at the time yeah, of the murders stupid. as like proof. It's like, what? it's like a, a picture why, of But why would dead. you need proof that it was done when right. everybody knew the whole family had been murdered? See, that doesn't even make sense. Mob rules are different. Yeah. Well, Troy, yeah. If they know. had disposed of the body somewhere. Right. Yeah. I could understand that being a thing. It's, but since they didn't and everybody in town saw it, I don't know what proof you would need. That was that was just I dumb. think Wilkerson would say, Troy, you're asking a lot of questions. I'm going to need you to not think about yeah, it. So right. Much. Exactly. So exactly. November 23rd, um, Alice finally testifies. Uh, she testified that two men who met Jones and McCall at the Moore house that night were, in fact, Mansfield and Harry Whipple. Yeah, Harry Whipple. Because like you said, his, his brother, the, was uh, <laughs> Must you know, busy. busy that day. Um, says Frank paid her a visit on August 12th, asking if she received a threatening letter. 
Beeson was very skeptical about her story as the grand jury had been. Right, exactly. Um, let's see. So they, they eventually call Ross Moore, Hank Horton um, to the stand. Who really didn't have anything bad to say. Right. And then, they were just trying to make it sound like that it was legitimate. Sure. Her story was legitimate when it was. Right. And so. then Hank gets called later. He'll be he'll yeah. be the last witness right. that, we, that we talk about again. Um, Sheriff Jackson's called. He brings the murder weapon with him on the stand for shock value. He tries to make Tompkins' story more believable, which leads me to um, have this question. Do do they have the axe today? Is it like in a museum yeah, or at the house? It or it's in the county history museum. Interesting. Have yeah. you seen it? Yeah. Does it look painful? It's, it's just an axe. <laughs> just just I mean, an axe. It's just an axe. All right. Well, hey, yeah. Troy's a tough guy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know. So James, Wilker- would I like to have it? Sure. But you know, <laughs> right? James Wilkerson finally testifies. So Wilkerson gives a seven-hour testimony, but it's anticlimactic. And that's kind of well, yeah. what, I, what I was talking to my friend about. I was like, right. he's like, no, this is totally I'm no- sure it was boring. Thing. It was seven hours of boredom because everybody had already heard the story. And it's really just him up there, you know, telling his, you know, version his of the story. Yeah, exactly. And, and which everybody had already heard. Right. And now we've already heard from like 30 witnesses saying the exact same thing. Sure. And making up crap. Yeah. You know, hearing Sarah Moore scream in the middle of the night and bullshit like that. Yes. You know, which she forgot to mention four years ago when the, well, it, when the murder sh- happened. Shit uh-huh. your mind, you know. No, right. Just, uh-huh. starts, so he starts with a statement about Marshall uh, Horton was dishonest, claims that Frank and I were playing the murders. Uh, Donna was having affairs. Jones is angry at JB for hurting his business. And McCall is the getaway driver. Uh, Wilkerson is then cross-examined uh, by Pringle for a brief time. And he's very sarcastic when he's up there. And so I wanted to ask you about this. He says the Burns agency spent about $7,000 on the case, even though only 5000 had been paid. I know those are huge numbers like for back in the day and stuff, but yeah, do, you, I, do we have any that, idea with accurate. the money? That's not accurate anyway. I, I know he was lying. Um, yeah. There had to have been, well, he, he may have spent, but he was soliciting his own funds. Right, right. You know, that's the thing. So maybe he had been paid $5,000 for his services from Burns because he was an employee from the Burns Agency. Sure. But he was also soliciting money on his own. Well, he's got to so maximize he was pocketing this. a lot of cash, a lot of cash. He's a son of a bitch. And, you know, I'm sure that some of it was going to pay off witnesses. I mean, I guarantee that was happening. Right. Um, so I know he was paying for a lot of things with the money that was being raised by these committees that he was putting together. But I also know he made a bundle on this thing. Right. Um, you know. Yep. I mean, I've been working it now for like four years or three years now. So give me a break. I mean, his whole know. thing was making money and as much right. money as right. possible. Exactly. Um, eventually, they call up Ed Landers. He has some sens- sensational claims. Uh, and then we talked about earlier, he had a witness on the stand that refused to speak because he right. wanted to talk about uh, Albert Jones. I saw him going to the Moore house. Um, hadn't said anything about this when he was questioned years before. Um, Ross Moore's called, talks about recounting a trip to the slaughterhouse right, by Claire Right, which, which actually becomes kind of important. He went there because a psychic had told him to go there. Auntie right. Hamilton had told him to go there and that she he would find the murder weapon. Well, the murder weapon was left at the house, but she didn't know that, so pff, some psychic. But right. on the other hand, he went out there with some friends to the slaughterhouse, and then that story got picked up by the newspaper. So the theory was is that this is where Vena Tompkins concocted her story of mm-hmm. the men at the slaughterhouse okay. because she saw that story in the newspaper. That's, right. That was their theory. But what I did find interesting, though, is this woman with the occult powers, as so the newspaper said, described the 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 killer 
not as Frank Jones or William Mansfield or anything, but gave almost the exact description of the guy from Colorado Springs and the guy that was seen walking around town. So that maybe was, she's legit. Well, maybe she was legit, and but only got part of the story right. Right. So yeah. you know who knows. But I did find that interesting. Yeah. So I, and the reporters liked her. I mean, they they liked her because I guess she had made she was newspaper fodder when you know they didn't have anything else to write about. So we'll, we'll see what you know Annie Hamilton's got going on. Right. And so, you know, uh, that's why they reported the stories. But they did make a big deal about Ross and his friends going out to the slaughterhouse. Right. And so that put the slaughterhouse in the press. And then suddenly, Vena Tompkins has got a story about the slaughterhouse, too. Yeah. So. And it, it's it's terrible. We're going to we'll get to that in a minute. And then um, Hank, I want to talk about. Uh, Burt McC- well, Burt McCall takes the stand. He's deliberately tripped up and yeah. about forgetting his wedding anniversary. Like he's <laughs> yeah, trying he, to confuse. He really this got him already confused. Dumb Those guys person. already dumb. Yeah, right, exactly. already dumb person. But then Hank Horton's called to the stand. Um, okay, so do you think the the man that Hank Horton saw that night was the Maybe. murderer of the Maybe. night? Maybe. I mean, we don't know, but he certainly could have been because he was the only guy. That was the bigger guy, right? That yeah, he, that, that was the saw? guy that they saw, and it was the same guy that I think that. Um, Glackemeyer, he mm-hmm. saw him too. And then it may be Ed Landers if he did see somebody and wasn't making the whole thing up. Sure. That may have been who he saw because he said he was a heavy set guy like Albert Jones. Right. Um, so that's why he assumed that's who it was because, you know, at that point, there weren't a lot of strangers in town. The strangers right. all showed up after the murders. So the fact that Hank Horton and his night watchman saw this guy and and Hank Horton, who, as we discussed from the very beginning, was not exactly an experienced policeman, but he knew Velisca. Yeah. You know, and, and like really all he had to do, guy, he was right? a good guy. I think he was a good guy. Overwhelmed. I he, yeah, I just think he was out of his league. But I think he did a good job kind of watching over the town as the marshal because they really didn't have any crime. Right. I mean, it was it was mostly picking up drunks. And, and breaking up fights, you right. know, that's that's really his job back then and making sure that businesses were locked up at night. But he got a bad vibe from this guy mm-hmm. and told his friend, you know, we should keep an eye on this dude. But then he was gone. Yeah. You know, and he never got a cl- good look at him. Should have chased him down. Remember, there were no lights. Right. Because the power was out. So all they had were their flashlights. So they right. never got a good look at him. But so do I think so? I think it's a possibility. You know, it, it certainly fits the description the from Colorado Springs. Lead that it I is, it is because the only other time that the that 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 Billy, the axe man, was seen was in Colorado Springs, and two different people in two different situations, early morning hours, who didn't know each other, both described the same man, mm-hmm. and this is the same guy. Yeah, I mean, it, the description is anyway. I mean, I know it's kind of vague, sure. but it's still it's pretty close. Is there, wait, is there, but a, a homeless guy riding the rails is he going to be fat? Is he eating? Well, we don't know he's homeless. For all we know, he worked for the railroad. That's true. For all we know, he could have been an an ordinary person who just liked to ride the rails and murder people. That's true. I apologize. I mean, try and, you know, try and discover what the, you know, most, most serial killers don't have a real, they have a motive to them, but it's not a motive that most of us would understand. So for all we know, this guy was, I doubt it, but it's possible he could have been married and had kids somewhere. Mm -hmm. And this is what he did or worked for the railroad maybe and was on the trains. Right. I mean, we don't know. I mean, we just, we don't know. I do want to point out too, that most serial killers, it's not a quiet person you never suspect. There are always red flags. Yeah. If you look for them yeah. in hindsight. What's that smell coming from Casey's basement? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah you're not allowed in the there. garage. Plus he dresses up like a clown. Yeah, so, all that know. sort of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, okay, moving on. Uh, so there was one witness, uh, Harry Whipple, 
that Wilkerson thought was essential <laughs> to the murders. So he was sworn in, and they're like, oh, no, wait, we got a break yeah, for lunch. We've decided we're not going to call him. But then after some conversations, he just pieces out. He, he, he bailed. What, now, what do you think happened? Well, they could have, I mean, they could have issued a subpoena and brought him back if they could find him. But right. I think that they he took off because suddenly, or was paid off. I imagine he was paid off to disappear. Get out of town. Because I think that, you know, he had been, Wilkerson had blamed him for, you know, being involved in this plot. And um, he sat there and I, I imagine he was there with some of his friends. I wonder if the was there with him. Yeah, right. Um, but he was there with some of his friends probably to confirm his alibi that he had nothing to do with sure. it. And uh, they said that. that Vena Tompkins was talking to him and they weren't sure what he was going to say. And then I'm going to say, I'm going to guess they paid him off mm-hmm. and got him because she wouldn't talk to him, probably gave him some money to get lost. She probably said, listen, I, I can't have you here because if you're here, they're not going to believe my story and I'm going to get in trouble. And you think so that would come left. down from Wilkerson then all the way, like, or you think probably through, thing? yeah, to through her, um, because I mean, it was her brother and she was the one seen talking to him and whatever happened next he took off right so we don't know what he ever would have said but my guess is he would have said you know he didn't have anything to do with it and uh, you know the whole thing was a lie and that would have probably or could have lost them the case right so then they bring that stupid photographer up instead is that Joel, uh, John yeah, Moore? No, the guy yeah. that, who's building caught on fire in the back of the bank. Building. Right. So he, he's called I told st- you that would come back. He did. He's called <laughs> to the stand. He, oh, you overheard some strange conversation. Fucking course. Uh, which yeah. basically, because oh, yeah, everybody does. Which basically just contained all of Wilkerson's theories. That's all I have. Oh on yeah, that's the whole thing. That's well, it. he claimed he claimed he came home from work and his wife heard talking outside. So he went outside to the. The barn, which I guess would, was more like a like a warehouse, like a parking area for right. implement and machinery and stuff, and stood there for in the now in the cold, stood there for what two hours or something, yeah, and listened to does. him talk, and then his entire testimony lasts five minutes. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, oh yeah, you listen to them talk for two hours in the cold, right. now, and that's yeah. Well, nobody believed him; it didn't matter. There's so. money hanging out of your pockets. Uh-huh. What's going on? Yeah, right and now? everybody, you know, then they called up a bunch of witnesses that said, "Yeah, that's not true." Sure. And then they called some up and said, "Oh yeah, it is true." Oh, they could have stood in there. I mean, it's just the whole thing was a you wash, m- yeah. You, you might have obviously had an axe to grind. You know, right. So well, what? I mean, because, poor, poor metaphor to use here. Well, okay, you're right. You're right. But oh, I mean, Frank Jones was probably mail. mad because he had burned the building down because of his negligence in his photography yeah. studio, and so he thought, well, I'll get, I'll show him. Hell yeah, you yeah. Know, so it, it adds up. Yeah, yeah. Motive, everything. Um, okay, so Monday, December fourth, Albert Jones takes a stand. Um, not that eventful. No, not really. I mean, they they were trying to say that Albert, you know, had, you know, helped Mansfield get out of town. And that's why he and Burt McCall had taken off. They were making sales calls. Right. I mean, it was pretty basic. I don't think Albert was any kind of criminal genius by any means. Nope. Um, He was a a kind of a slob that, you know, that, that got lucky with a good looking woman that, you know, Everybody said fooled around on him, yeah. you know, so who, I mean, we don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't know if she did or not, but she was pretty and he was a goof, right? you know, and that's, you know, where things 
went with him and, you know, he probably never would have had a legitimate job on his own. His dad, you know, paid his bill. And we talked about all this. Sure. He was a bro, you know, he was a frat boy bro, right, right. you know, who couldn't get a real job or a real life. So all he did was deny that any of that stuff ever happened. And right. he denied that, you know, Burt McCall had helped William Mansfield escape from Villisca and all this bullshit. And, you know, and said, you know, we didn't buy Burt a car. He bought that himself. And they even had sale. I didn't put this in here, but I knew we'd talk about it. He even had the sales slips and receipts to prove he bought the car. They're, no, they're forged. Yeah. Okay. Oh, right. But see, that's the problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the problem. Everything can be forged back then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next witness is Frank Jones. So he says that on the on the morning the bloodhounds were brought in, he'd been talking with a farmer named uh, Harry Willett, who said that there were sus- suspicions concerning a man named Bartlett being involved with the murders. And Jones replied as a joke, oh, yeah, they have me among the yeah, suspects, right, too. Yeah, right, Dumbass. Yeah, well, it was a dumb thing to say, but he I didn't don't think he had any idea sure. because they, he thought it was ludicrous. Just, you know, well, you know, obviously this guy didn't do it. This farmer didn't do it. And I didn't do it either. Right. You know, his point was, is that's you don't believe what everything you hear because people keep saying I did it. Right. You know, and. Yeah, came back to bite him, him in the ass, and, you, yeah. and no one, no one would think that. No, like, no, not legitimately. No, and now, so, nowadays, it'd be you know, caught he had on to make. He had to come up with reasons for everything he did. You know, going to church that night, right? And, you know, we talked about all that stuff and the holy. I mean, this guy's not going to want to sit through, you know, uh, people speaking in tongues and rolling around on the floor. This is like a, you know, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. If I, if I had know, to, if I had just, to account for every choice, I mean, people would be like, oh, well, you got somebody's watching me. You got home. You you walked five minutes past yeah. your apartment and came back. I'd be like, you know stuff. what? I got lost. Yeah, he like, remembers this because shit. of what happened. But I mean, you know, he even says, you know, there were kids outside playing and I went outside to quiet him down. Yeah, that was that was the reason he went outside. Just there was nothing stuff. sinister. He wasn't meeting with anyone. Right. Nothing like that. I mean, right. none of this stuff, you know, was true. I mean, it just none of it happened. It's a lot of confirmation bias from the people that so, are following yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, he got up Wilkerson. on the stand and pretty much just denied everything everything yep. that they were saying about him and and had a legitimate explanation for everything mm-hmm. and you know but they just turned it around and twisted it around right. on it. His testimony you know. took hours. Uh, he was clearly yeah. shaken but okay and he thought he had set the record straight but apparently not. So Wednesday December 6th, uh, Frank Jones was called back to the witness box asked about the first about the first time he'd heard about Vena Tompkins. Um, at this point they're talking about letters and, and correspondence. And at this point, he pulls out a letter from his pocket from H.W. Stubbs. Yeah. Why didn't he put that letter through the proper channel so it could actually well, be used? Well, I wish he would have, but I think he was trying to present it. I, I don't think anybody thought. I don't know why I they didn't think about it, but he should have. He should have. His attorneys should have. But my guess would be, if I had to guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time defending Frank Jones because only because I think he was innocent. I don't think I probably would have liked him much either if I had lived in town because I think he probably would have kind of an arrogant, yeah, rich guy that, you know, I I doubt I would have had a lot of in common with him, sure. you know, you know, but that's why you and I don't get along. So, yeah, so right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. But I think that he probably thought he knew better. Okay. I mean, because um, this whole case was him knowing better than his attorneys true, yeah. because he thought he was smarter than that's them. a good point. And so I think he thought, well, I'll pull out this letter from this, you know, this, this, district attorney, who, you know, who had, you know, this bad dealings with Wilkerson over the Nellie Byers thing. And we talked about that story a few episodes yeah. ago that he completely
completely botched it and was just trying to make money off the whole thing. And I'm sure that that Stubbs, whatever, we don't know what he wrote, but I'm sure it was bad. Yeah. Um, and he had sent Frank this letter, I, I think probably to try to help him out. Mm-hmm. And then instead of giving it to his attorneys, he thought, oh, well, I'll shock the audience and do a Perry Mason move. Right. right? And, right. and shock the, everybody in the courtroom. And then, you know, they didn't even get it admitted uh, because then, you know, the attorney didn't want to talk I'm about sure it once he like, read it and went, OK, me. we cannot talk about this. Right. And so, you know, it never and it, if it had been presented things might have gone better for you him. think that would have swayed I, I don't swayed know it. but it would have certainly painted Wilkerson in a new light to the jury at right. least they would have seen you know instead of just Frank Jones and his friends saying oh this is he he said that bad things about me here would have been a district attorney from another county writing in and saying this guy's a con artist who tried to get me to get a reward so he could split it with me and True. he screwed up my case and you know so yeah. I think that that might have made a difference. That makes sense because later on... Until what happens well, next. say, because right. Frank is accused yeah. of that, it really does sway it. So right. maybe maybe you're right. Maybe right. it would have changed things. So yeah. um, real quick, Mitchell then called uh, Mary Moore, JP's mother, to the stand. Did For, he just do this just so he could be seen walking? I think it was a sympathy up? thing. Yeah, his Eddie Haskell move. Yes. You know, that's that's the way. I almost said that, but I thought maybe no one will know who Eddie Haskell is. I know it is, is only so. because my mom is stuck in the 1950s. And, and she watches, watches Leave it to Beaver. All so. the time. And I learned a lot from Eddie Haskell. <laughs> yeah, you right, win exactly. over the mom well, and the, yeah, that's and the, the girlfriend's thing. best friend. Right, yeah, that's what right. you do. Um, Alice Willard returns to the stand on December 7th. So she then claimed Atkinson told her that she would be well paid if she agreed to retract. Well, that her whole thing. Well, yeah, but her her whole thing that that was what her testimony was. But I mean, you know, she went through that whole thing about, you know, needing to ride home. Right. All that stuff. After the the trial. Yeah. And that after she was there and, you know, and then the the. The driver just happened to overhear the things. Right, and she's I crying, thought, and yeah, that was it. That that you got that's ahead of its time. Oh yeah, that was a that was a classic move it, that was ahead of its time. I said I don't agree with it, but it's it works. It's sli- it's, it's it was impressive. Slick. It's impressive. It was slick, which is how Wilkerson has gotten by, right. As far as he has at this point, exactly. So, so Atkinson comes back as as a it takes a stand as a reluctant witness, yeah. but he says not only don't well, yeah, I have he's a car, embarrassed at this point, I don't know yeah. how to drive. I don't know how to drive. Um, no. But he said he'd been. By, by a cunning woman and the damage was done yeah, and the, oh yeah that the was jury the end believed, of it there yeah the jury so. believed that Jones had tried to pay off a witness basically right, right. And, and, and the whole thing was a setup I mean just a complete setup from start to finish but and it's brilliant nobody saw it coming right and so Hank Horton is the uh, the last witness to be called or called to stand as one of the last witnesses right. um, I kind of in my mind see this as he's just like go fuck yourself like yeah, just, yeah. he's holding I, at strong this point, against I know Wilkerson. at this point he was not going to back down right and so. that's good and I'm, I'm it's very interesting to me about how many times they keep calling people back oh yeah and how that yeah. works keep recalling witnesses um yeah for days and days and so now we get into the closing arguments well and you know yeah. and a lot of this i didn't again i couldn't get into the every single little detail I'm so glad that, you didn't well i know because these would be rebuttal witnesses or would be called back to the stand by the defense instead of, right and so i just wanted to present the story sure rather than make it a legal trial i mean it's a you lot know, to it's get a through. lot to get through and there was you know but that's why people like alice willard kept popping up again because they would call somebody to rebut her testimony so then the defense would call her back again. And so that's why so many should be on the stand five times. That right. was the reason why. 
So, yeah. it, and, it, and hopefully that makes sense to everybody. Sure. And I, I learned last night, too, that if you call a witness to the stand, so say I'm the on the prosecution and I call a witness to the stand, I can ask them questions and that's all great, but I can't ask them any leading questions. Right. But if I'm on the defense, if I'm cross-examining, I can ask them leading well, questions. Well, you can also, you can't, you can't, unless you're, inter, you, you can't introduce new testimony or new evidence from a witness unless it's already been introduced well, on cross-examination. Yeah, right. Is this right. So you have to too. only, you have to get them to testify to what they just testified to. Right. And you can revisit that. But yes, yeah, so it's, it's, there's a lot of ins and outs and I couldn't, I couldn't put all that stuff in. No, you know, no, so, no, no, of course know. not. I mean, you know, Beeson gets up and makes a three hour closing statement. Well, I can't yes. put all that in there. Yes. I mean, it was pretty much just the same stuff. He was just reiterating the fact of what was going on and making fun of the witnesses that the defense had called when he called Ed Landers a, a queer kind of duck. I thought yes. that was funny. That's hilarious. And I had to put that in there in quotes. Right. You know, so so. Duck walks in his market. Anyway, yeah. no, I got any grapes. So Beeson's closing arguments, like you said, took three hours and he spent he paid special attention to the phony testimonies of Vina Tompkins, Alice Willard, John uh, Newell. And then he closed by saying, there's no evidence to show that F.F. Jones had any reason to kill Joe Moore. It is all framed up, dramatic, unbelievable. Scandal loves a shining mark. All this evidence is fictitious, constructed, the growth of imagination and falsehood. Do you do what your conscience prompts you to do in this instance? And then Wilkerson has his his time to shine, comes back and, uh, um, sorry, well, his lawyer, Mitchell, Mitchell right, right. says, if you want the murderer to be caught, then give a verdict that will encourage men who are trying to ferret this thing out. But uh, bring in a verdict for Jones and this thing will remain unsolved forever. So they're, they're going yeah, way beyond the Going slander. way beyond the slander. They're right, talking about exactly. murder. Right. And that I, that I think is probably what swayed the jury more than anything. Um, it wasn't so much as that they, they were now feeling that, well, if we say that, that Jones is right, that Mansfield or that Wilkerson has been slandering him all this time, then, you know, this murder's never going to get solved because he's the only detective still working on it. Sure. I'm sure that that was part of it. At right. Least played a part in the decision. Right. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit too about well, what the judge said that they should listen to and what they shouldn't listen to. And right, I, I asked my buddy last matter. night about how that didn't matter. I was like, how does it work when you hear something and the judge is <laughs> like, disregard. You've already heard yeah, it. Yeah, you've already heard matter. it. If you can get it in, you're in good shape. Sure. Yeah. So the closing arguments, uh, Beeson then said, gentlemen, before you convict a man of murder, you certainly want better evidence than this. I say a verdict against Frank Jones will be hailed everywhere as an accusation of murder. Are you going to say that this man of over 60 years of age was a party to this horrible murder that you're hinting here now that uh, he will be indicted for murder if this verdict goes against him. This remark turned out to be the biggest misstep uh, that yeah. he could have ever taken. It was yeah. uh, tantamount to saying that a verdict against Jones was the same as an same indictment thing. for murder. Right. I get where he's coming from, but this is bad because Beeson intended yeah. to show that the, show the jury that a verdict against Jones was a ridiculous idea, but instead it returned to haunt Frank Jones for many years afterwards. At 11.35 p.m. that night, uh, the trial's done, but the jury's like, no, we're, we're anxious where we've been yeah, here for a, get started. a while. We want to get started. They cast the first yeah, it's ballot. Been, it's been, this trial has been, again, Months. there's a reason why this is so long. It's been going on for four weeks now. Right, right. So that's why this story ended up so long. Sure. And so they want to cast their first ballot. They do. It's a 50-50 split. So peace out till the next day. Uh, this is Sunday morning, jury deliberations. Apparently one of those who voted for Jones had finally moved over to the Wilkerson side. Yeah, it uh, just slowly happened. Slowly started siphoning off. fought and argued and fought and argued for the next day and a half. Right. You know, and then they came back with a stupid verdict. Right. You know? And so, but yeah, again, 
awfully hard to prove that kind of thing. Right. So. Well, so you get, you get 12 people in a room. There's a bailiff outside. Whenever the jury's done, they knock on the door and go. Yeah. But other than that, it's just them. And they sent room. out questions to the judge that the judge at first ignored. At first, saying, yeah. And, you know, if, if, hey, if we find him guilty, is he going to get indicted? Well, right. nobody can answer that. But he later so. addressed it and basically says, yeah. don't think about it. Yeah. Don't, you don't need to worry about that. But it's too late. Of course. they've already heard it. Of course. So. so just after midnight, after much shouting and deliberating, the jury found for Wilkerson. So Mitchell began publicly proclaiming Jones' guilt immediately. Yeah. Uh, much was made then later about Beeson's closing remarks, and new county attorney, a county attorney Oscar Winstram was forced to pay attention to it. Uh, and when the, the time of trial ended, he was faced with the realization that a finding in Wilkerson's favor was only the beginning. The slander trial jury had no authority to indict Jones, but as the verdict gave credence to Wilkerson and his wild theories, uh, Winstrand felt the obligation to take the matter before a jury that would be able to do so. But there's other things that are coming. So I'm going to tell you that while it doesn't seem like it, this is the beginning of the end for James Wilkerson. Yeah. Okay. Even though it doesn't seem like it right now because he came out on top. Right. It's not over. Spoiler alert. Nothing is over. And, um, we're going to, uh, we'll explore that some more soon. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll explore, um, because we're going to get William Mansfield back in town for one thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're going to get him back into the story for the last time. Um, and that's really going to be the next nail in Wilkerson's coffin. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I, I don't want to give anything away, but there's more things coming. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, um, it won't be long and our favorite perv will be back in town too. So we have, we have fun times with Reverend Kelly still to come. So, nice. Yeah. Awesome. So we're getting near the end, believe it or not, this is all starting to, you know, starting to wind down. This is a long one, but I feel like this actually helped me get a better grasp on all the players and who yeah, they are and where yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them and there's a lot of names. And I know that uh, as my friend Renee Cruz said that she said, I, I think I maybe need a murder board that I could keep track of all yes. of the different people, like a big whiteboard that I could keep track of all the moving parts. I know there are a lot and, you know, uh, but you know, it's, it's just, it's such a great story. Yeah. I just, you know, it's hard to leave things out. It really is. So I don't want to, you know, yeah. I don't want to, um, nobody has complained to me, uh, about the shows. So yeah, except to you. Right. Um, but no one has complained to me. So I think that, you know, we're, we're, we're tapping into something that I think people are enjoying. I don't think yeah. anybody's ever covered. I mean, a lot of people have covered these stories or covered Velisca, but nobody's covered all this. Right. So, um, I'm enjoying it and, uh, I think you are. And um, hopefully everybody else is too. So, sure. and again, sorry for the really long one. Uh, I don't know. There may be another one we get to, Ooh, I almost spilled the beans, mm. but anyway, we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see. There's, right. there's good stuff coming. I promise. All right. So it just gets more exciting from here on. Sure. Out, so, and I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to tell anybody what it is, but we already know the subject matter for our next season. We do. And I just wanted we to do. put it out there that it's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. Um, and it'll be different. It will. And it'll be fun. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. It's now time for our ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. 
Our email comes to us from Justin. It's a, it's a long one, but it's good. He said, I just wanted to write and say that my wife and I Everything had Everything about this episode has been yes. long. <laughs> so it's appropriate. I just wanted to write and say that my wife and I had the best time at the Haunted America conference. It was our first one. My wife got me into the podcast and we are loving it. I listened to all the outros. Yes. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> oh, we've never got to meet Glutton you in person. Each time we tried, each time we tried, you were both very busy doing your thing and the rest of the time we were having too much fun at the conference. Uh, I'm already looking forward to next year's dates. Troy, because I'm writing your podcast i'll say it was lisa's idea to invite her but you need to have karen dolman back next year apparently like karen uh we took her class and it was mind-blowing really enjoyed it all the speakers are great thanks again keep up the good work cody you need to get april slaughter on the podcast to tell her story about what happened last year um actually we just had april on the bonus episode yes. uh, last week so if you want to yes. hear that sign up for a patreon um let's see uh Basically, send, sending uh, positive vibes from Los Angeles, Justin and Donna, my cool. wife's my wife's patron. P.S. I'm a big fan of Monster Squad. Not sure if I made it your movie list, but it should. No. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> and it, it didn't. Cody um, might have liked that one. Hey, you know what? Stop talking about VHS too, okay? Um, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for coming out to the conference. And dude, Troy and I were busy as hell. Troy oh, more so God. than I was. But if you were here all weekend, just interrupt yeah, me. Come you up, can st- come up, yeah. say hi. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for writing in, for listening, and for giving to the Patreon and stuff. Um, but if if you come back next year, like make it a point to walk up to me and just. Say hi. I know we're we're busy and all over the place. Like we're not tr- that busy. Yeah, we're never that not busy, for the entire me. weekend. So um, you know, I appreciate it, but. If you came all the way here, especially from LA, come say hi. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for writing in, Justin. I, I really appreciate it. Okay, so real quick, we have a couple of Patreon shout-outs. If you want to get um, more episodes, you can get weekly episodes. You can get discounts on books and upcoming events. You can get um, T-shirts and different access to different things, Facebook groups, things like that. You can sign up at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. I want to give a quick shout-out to our newest patrons, Kirby, Christy, David, and Abigail. So thank you so much for giving to our Patreon. I really appreciate it. Okay, well, guys, thank you for listening to what is now setting a record for our longest episode ever. Uh, but please share the podcast with your friends. Keep listening. Uh, give us a review on iTunes, and we will talk to you soon. And uh, I think that since it's so long, we're just going to go ahead and end it right here. And this episode um, of the I American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited for countless hours by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can also learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books, as well as information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And we'll see you next week or next time. And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have that. You have the chance to support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. As a supporter, you can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more episodes with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Haunting. You can also find your host on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, Troy, be sure to pass them along. Until next time, goodbye. So long. Do you have any grapes? See you later. Thank you.
The lovable apes afterlife antics have helped the hall to be named as one of the most haunted houses in England after being listed on We Buy Any Homes list of nine most ghostly properties. The 15th century house was originally built by the Martin family, whose crest featured an excited monkey sitting on a tree stump. The estate's motto was, he who looks at Martin's ape, Martin's ape will look at him. What the fuck? <laughs> and ever since, the horny ghost of Martin's monkey, this is, <laughs> has haunted the sprawling country pile to make it a go-to destination for curious phantom fanatics. One tourist dad of three, John Morrison, 41 of Derby, who spoke, who took his entire family to the estate, spoke excitedly about the spanking spook. He said, nice. we heard that Martin the monkey who haunts the house loves to scratch his privates while swinging around. We didn't see him, which is a shame because it would have been a real sight. Apparently, he's not terrifying. Quite friendly is what we've heard. Yet to himself. Yeah. According to the local legend, the unconventional. Uh, this is where I was going. So where's this come from? According to the local legend, the unconventional Martin family did have a pet ape, which was free to wander the halls. And when one of the Martin daughters had an unhappy love affair and decided to kill herself, the compassionate monkey began following her around. When she climbed a set of hidden stairs to a secret room, the ape trailed behind and watched as she took her own life with the door bolted. By the time the family searched the house and the grounds eventually located the room, the ape had starved to death next to her body. Now its ghost haunts the hall, often scratching at the paneling of the secret room and staircase in an eternal frantic attempt to escape. But the monkey is not alone. The house is reputed to have six other ghosts, all human. Athelhampton has long been known as a haunted spot and was featured on TV's Most Haunted, shocking, in 2002. There has been a structure on the site since Saxon times. Andrea Cook, who has lived at the house with her family for more than 20 years, said she has witnessed all sorts of odd and inexplicable things. But while many people have a rational explanation, she said, there are always some who do not. The most recent was a dark hooded figure which rushed past one of our cleaners. On the first sighting, she assumed she'd imagined it, but 10 minutes later, it came toward her again, up the old servant's staircase and hurried past her into the bathroom. England must be a fun place to live. She was terribly excited about it, having never witnessed such a thing. What this, what this was makes no sense at all. It was a figure of our youngest son. Okay, bad writing. It is a figure our youngest son has seen on a couple of occasions, but the cleaner was unaware of this at the time. Despite all this, it's an amazing place to live. It's a beautiful, I'm, I'm, where's the thing about the monkey? It's a beautiful home, we're happy here. And why is the monkey masturbating? I'm not getting that. It's a beautiful home, we're happy and generally lovely, blah, blah, blah. But on occasion when something does occur, I must stress it's only occasionally, it reminds you that some things which are beyond our understanding. A spokesperson from We Buy Any Homes said, whether you believe in ghosts or not, it's undeniable that some places, for whatever reason, just give us the creeps. Whether it be an, the, the old-fashioned decor, the eerie silence that hangs over the property, the footsteps on the landing in the dead of the night, some properties give the feeling that they may be occupied by something or someone else. Andrea said that when her sons were younger, their friends refused to sleep over at Affleton Hampton Hall. Athel Hampton Hall because of because of doors being agitated figures at the end of your bed figures stood in doorways the sound of footsteps backward and forwards in your bedroom and um masturbating monkey I, I wouldn't want to send my kids there either but I still don't understand why the monkey is masturbating that's what I'm losing or I guess just do all monkeys spank the monkey I I guess they do if you go to the zoo they're always doing that in their cage. I don't understand this story. 
I don't know what the fuck that was. Well, they do it a lot. They do it a lot. I was going to take Lux to the zoo, like, in yeah, two weeks. they do they it. Always do. No, it. they do it a lot. I care to go. They do it a lot, and, and they throw poop. I might. So I, might I guess he's not throwing ghost. Poop.